14th episode in a row, which uh, shows you we're, com we're committed. This <laughs> yeah. is about as committed as we get. You know, we're just saying about uh, Silky Science that uh, Eric and I would do, you know, I thought about two years ago now. Yeah, it probably was. It was old building. Yeah. You know, it, was the, it was the science of supplementation, the science and really the history of supplements. And uh, we were like hit or miss with that because we're busy. Yeah, that's the thing is we wanted to do it. We started getting into it. And it was just like every time you turn around, something came up. It was in that time frame of literally where the growth came. Was still, we're still growing. But I mean, you know, the growth was coming so fast. It was just it was tough to just deal with day to day, yeah. let alone then, hey, we got to do this show. It was fun because. A lot of the history of supplements, I think, kind of has been lost over the years. Yeah, I, um, I agree with that. And sure. everyone's told a different history of it. So I think the one thing that's really changed for us at Redcon is that the team is so much bigger now. And we have so many great people in all these positions where, you know, a lot of the hats that you used to wear or that I used to wear have been separated. We're doing the things we're best at as opposed to everything, right? More things. We do everything. Yeah. <laughs> like so, literally everything. Yeah. So it's, I think that's that speaks to the fact that uh, we're certainly still growing just as fast, maybe faster. And uh, and things are still busy, but now we have a great team, a bigger great team. You know? Oh no, we have an awesome team. So so guys, our first part of the show is in the news, obviously, and then we're going to have we're very excited to have our our guest on, uh, General David Petraeus, which we're, we're honored and excited to have him on. But before we get to any of that, let me remind everybody that the show uh, question and answers we will have questions being answered. Show let's show Ryan and Johnny in the background there. There they are. Wait, no, there they are. They are uh, holding it down. Johnny's running the uh, production and Ryan is answering all your questions, answering live and bringing those questions on to us. So if you have stuff for us or uh, General Petraeus, please go ahead and ask during the show. If it doesn't get asked or answered right away, it will be towards uh, the end or at a break. And then certainly when, uh, when General Petraeus has to go, we will be on to answer any questions that were asked previously. So uh, with that in mind, let's go to the news, Johnny. Um, by the way, I should say, text your questions. If you don't, if you don't have the ability or don't have the interest in spending the time to to write a comment, you can always text any of your questions to five six one four seven three four six seven three. Put that on the bottom of the screen. There you go. That's that's if you'd like to text uh, General Petraeus a question for us to ask. That's not his actual phone number. Damn it! In case they're wondering. <laughs> I thought that was Roger's phone phone number. Yeah, yeah, Roger last week. Yeah. Um, he won't answer anyway. <laughs> so anyway, guys, um, the first story is, is an interesting one. And a lot of people haven't seen it because Joe Rogan posted it on his Instagram and brought a lot of attention to the story. 750 million genetically engineered mosquitoes were approved to be released in Florida, in South Florida, in the Keys. In the Keys, yeah. Right by us. Uh, and uh, it is a pretty weird story. And there's been controversy on the story, that's the CNN story. And in that story, they really talk a lot about the fact that the, that this is a weird time to do it. They say a Jurassic Park experiment where they're, you know, that's they're spending resources, right, on, on getting them out. Well, yeah, because they're taking and modifying, this is really, it's a GMO mosquito. Yeah. So they've take, taken it, they've modified its, you know, DNA sequence where essentially it kills the female larva. Yeah. And then also they, um, well, the female larva die off, but then also they, they kill their own offspring. Right. So the interesting thing is, just like Jurassic Park, the mutate. So they changed the DNA so that they were only female and couldn't reproduce. But then nature always wins, and it kind of rewrote its own script. Yeah. So that that's the interesting thing about this for me is, you know, you take 750 million of these mosquitoes to go and control. So obviously the idea is not to use pesticides anymore. Right. That's the idea. Use the mosquitoes to kill, really control the population of mosquitoes. So dang fever malaria zika virus things like that don't carry on and the female ones are the ones that that, that bite and yep. suck the blood and, and then 
transmit diseases. So the interesting thing that I was initially concerned, I wasn't concerned about, but I was like, well, you know, concerned about mosquitoes, maybe not. But I was like, well, what is this going to do to the ecosystem if all the mosquitoes, because obviously if the if the girls die in the in the in the gestation period, womb, whatever you want to call it, right? Um, if they die, then there's no hard, nobody's going to replicate yeah, like you guys, right? So, um, but the, the truth is that this type of mosquito that transmits the disease is only 1% of the mosquito population. So yeah, it's a big type. deal, right? And you said, we looked it up and there's no real, the ecosystem isn't reliant upon the, the mosquitoes to provide food or something. Right? Yeah, I'm sure bats probably eat them, but. But the other stuff they can eat. Oh, hell yeah. They're they're they'll eat us, but. Yeah, they're good um, to go. But yeah, no, it's just, I wonder if like, what happens though? if the gene mutates on its own. Who knows? Well, that's the, that's the thing, one of the weird things, we've talked about CRISPR before, and the technology to uh, edit genes uh, is there for humans right now. You can literally, right now, get your genes edited, probably in China or some other place like that. Um, so <laughs> you know, do, we're not doing it here, at least we're not supposed to be doing it here. Um, but uh, who knows what's going on? We talk about it because of sports, right? So sports doping is a huge deal. And, uh, and obviously there's ways to, to cheat with taking medicine, but if you can cheat with your genes by changing your genes, then uh, it'd be very, very difficult to find out if you're doing it or what's going on, how it's happening, right? Yeah, you'd have to know what your original genetic makeup was yeah. versus current, so yeah. It's a whole different kind of testing, right? Yeah. Uh, that's, that's, a, that's an answer we'll have soon, Jer. Um, so our next story is Steve Bannon arrested for charges of fraud. Uh, this happened today, I believe, right? Yeah, uh, it did happen today. On a 152-foot boat called Lady May. Lady May. Lady May. Uh, was owned by a uh, Chinese billionaire who's a uh, uh, very anti-communist Chinese billionaire. Uh, interesting. The whole thing is 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 interesting. This is the sixth uh, person connected to uh, President Trump who's been indicted. So it's been one after another. Um, and we had last week, we had Roger Stone on, who was also, also one, of the, one of the six, right? Um, so it's a, it's a pretty interesting story. And if you believe what you read in the media, and I didn't read the indictment, but if you believe what you read, he basically was taking money to one of the, sounds like multiple different GoFundMes, charities they have, and this one was to build the wall. And uh, apparently, from what they say, allegedly, he was using that money for personal expenses along with his partner. Yeah, they generated like $25 million from that GoFundMe. Yeah. And I think... Looks like each person probably spent about a million bucks on personal stuff. Yeah, and who knows? So the one thing you to say is you, you just saw the indictment, and and you know that's one side of the story. I'm sure uh, he has another side of the story. I don't know Steve Bannon. I don't know anything about the story. We're just reporting the news. But I would say, you know, obviously, you know, it's it's an indictment, which is an accusation. So we'll, well see how it all comes out. Obviously, if he was taking money that people are donating for one thing and using it for his own personal expenses, that's terrible, and he should oh, yeah. he should be in trouble for that. And then, if uh, that's what he did. Yeah, and like we've talked about before, this is just seems like a gateway into if Trump doesn't get reelected, that you know, well, I know that's the, that's the concern for sure. Is that is that what happens to his family and him, right? Yeah, that people are. He's going to be the next on the list. That's definitely uh, that's definitely a, a, a real possibility, uh, based on what we've seen so far. Hey, Johnny, so. you got a picture of Mad Eye Moody from uh, oh, Harry Steve, Potter? Yeah, Steve tells me so. I'm not a Harry Potter fan, but we both do have young kids, <laughs> and so you have a St Steve Bannon. Can we show Steve Bannon again? Side by side. It's not a very flattering comparison, uh, but it's pretty damn close. It's pretty close. I don't know. I'll, I'll pull it up. You want to? You want to? You'll, you'll interrupt me when you're ready, okay, guys? Um, so the rising stock market. We talk about the stock market a lot. So the reason we talk about the stock market a lot, full and there's there. I oh, am yeah, pretty. Cut his little hair a little shorter, grease it back. It's pretty damn close. That is him. It's his brother, basically. That's his brother. It's like he had sex with Paul Giamatti, and that's what came out. <laughs> <laughs> so so there yes so um so 
the stock market, the reason we talk about the stock market so much is because when uh, COVID started happening, I got very, very interested in the stock market. And I'm not, I uh, would not say that I knew very much. Well, shit, I don't know very much about the stock market now. Because uh, well, I've, I've been wrong so many times. So, so I, I knew very little and I had people that were experts that were handling that kind of stuff for me. But then when the stock market crash happened, COVID happened around March 23rd, I think was the day where I was like, holy shit, like this is, this is, of course, America will always rebound. If you believe in America, if you believe in, you know, the, this great country, right, you know that we're going to be okay eventually, right? Whether it's in a, a month or two or whether it's one or two years or a decade, like we're going to be okay. So things went down so much and I contacted my investment guys who were basically like, hey, like we don't do that. We're not going to be aggressive with the money. We're going to be, you know, basically defensive. That's not our strategy. And so it got me very interested in the stock market very fast. And I started really becoming kind of a sponge into it. And I applied a lot of logic into basically the logical wrong, system. Yeah, that's where I really <laughs> went wrong. Now, um, fortunately, I still did okay, but I, I sold all my stocks long, long before um, the right now, which is now we're at the, we're 5% yeah. above, S&P 500 is 5% above the top point before, um, before COVID. So I always thought that the stock market was directly correlated with the economy, which it isn't. No, and uh, I mean, it's very obvious that it isn't, but I didn't know that. And, uh, and I have learned that now for sure, as we continue to see it go up and up and up and up. And, uh, you know, one of the cool or interesting things, the positive things for, I guess, the world is that, you know, a lot of the really big companies in the S&P 500 that are bringing in a majority of the value are, are internet companies. Yeah. And they get, you know, they say tech companies, but it's really a mixture, right? Because Facebook really is just a communication advertising platform. Netflix is an entertainment platform. Amazon's a retailer slash search engine now at this point. So yeah, it's definitely interesting, but Apple, I mean, it makes a $2 trillion of the 7 billion that those six companies, it's 29% of that group. It's fucking insane. It's absolutely crazy. It's crazy. Um, and uh, actually, that's our next story here. It's a good story. Oh, we can dovetail right into it. Look at that. So uh, Apple becomes United States' first $2 trillion company. $2 trillion. How many zeros is that? That's would be 9, 10, 10. Well, yeah, 9, no, 0. No, sorry. 10, 11, 12, 13. 13-digit company, right? Yeah. It's a billion, yeah. Million, billion, trillion. Jesus. So $2 trillion. Two trillion dollar company, Jesus. which is so insane, and that's the market cap. So that it's you know that's how they. What does it mean about companies with two trillion? I mean, it's all the stock on the market is worth two trillion. And the interesting thing that we talked about before, and actually with the same thing with the last story about the rising stock market, it's interesting how that goes because you'd you'd assume that the that because it's in China, you'd think there would be supply chain issues, there'd be issues with money, people having money to buy the new iPhone or the new iPad or whatever because everything that's happening with COVID, you have lost jobs, incredible unemployment. How are these companies, you know, continuing to, somebody like Apple, which is mostly, not all, but mostly a physical good company, you know, they're buying, you know, physical goods. Who's buying it right now? Are, are normal people, uh, average workers in America, middle class or, or, or lower class, purchasing Apple products right now? I would assume no, but apparently, They yes. must be though. And now here's the weird, here's the weirdest part of this whole story is that, all of the 510 Apple stores in the whole world are closed now. And all of those employees are still getting paid and all of those uh, rents are still getting paid. So they're all tremendous, tremendous losers. I mean, every one of those 510 stores, like the one in uh, here in town center mall in Boca, one in Manhattan is oh, huge. One in Manhattan is, is huge. Insane. Who knows I mean, what's the rent on that? Or I mean, like who can even, you know, 
millions and millions of dollars a month. No, it's, it's huge. It's a freestanding glass structure. I mean, it's a, who knows? So who knows what kind of money they're losing, but they obviously are doing so well financially somehow, whether it's, whether it's physical products or subscription, you know, subscription. Based I don't know what like the Apple, you know, iTunes stuff. Yeah. People listening to music or buying movies. That's it right there. Yeah. It's crazy. It's crazy. What's crazy now is Apple's worth more than Armaco Saudi. Insane. Which is crazy. You know, Saudi oil money. Yeah. You know, that's like endless money. And now I think they're worth like 1.82 trillion. Yeah. And then, so yeah, it's it's, crazy. Un it's unbelievable, unbelievable. So I mean, I, I love Apple products. I'm looking forward to a new iPhone, but I wonder how many normal American consumers are ready to buy a thousand dollar new iPhone. Come, uh, I guess it'd be September. Normally, I think they're pushing it to October, right, Ryan? Yes. October. So November for the one I want, right? The Pro is November, yeah. Um, so it is. It is very interesting. See, this is trying to get in. Oh, with a reservation, trying to get into the Apple Store. So Apple hasn't lost any popularity, and I, I know how popular Apple is. But the fact that they're not allowing people in the stores now—I mean, what does that? What does that do? It has to significantly reduce uh, revenue. So amazing that these companies are doing so well. I mean, I'm happy for them. I wish I wouldn't have sold all my stock, honestly, but it is. Yeah, but I mean, <laughs> it is, honestly, it is. You, again, if you were trying to reason with it, it was the smart move to make. Yeah, you, you just can't. You can't reason with it. And so, like, for a lot of people who did leave, you know, like I, I've seen Berkshire Hathaway, you know, Warren Buffett and his uh, partner, Charlie uh, Munger, um, they're like starting to put money back in, not back into the market, into back specific things. They bought a, a gold mining company just uh, this last week, bought part of it. Um, so that's an interesting move. So you know, I look at these people who are much more experienced that are doing stuff and and honestly, it just makes you realize how little I know. You know, the whole thing is how. Yeah, you know, or just someone else is in complete control. So. Yeah, who knows, man? Who knows? So, guys, I want to uh, go to commercial break real quick, and uh, when we get back, we're very excited to have uh, General Petraeus on with us. We're going to ask him a whole bunch of questions, you know, a large variety of uh, subject matter. But uh, hopefully, enjoy the commercial. Pay very close attention if you're a Retcon fan to the deal this weekend because we have people are saying they love the hoodie. Well, guess what? It's free. I, I don't that. come with it, but just the no, fucking hoodie. just the hoodie. Yeah. No, they wouldn't come on. No one wants that yeah. shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let's go to commercial, Johnny. A lot of money for you, Ryan. Yeah. <laughs> Send us. Hey guys, what's up? So the Redcom one deal is here. When you spend $50, you get the Vice City hoodie. When you spend $80, you're gonna get a free tub of Big Noise, that's a strawberry kiwi flavor. That's a pump formula. When you spend $95, you get a choice of flavors in the MRE Light Protein, Blueberry Cobbler, or the Oatmeal Chocolate Chip. Also, 35% off the entire store. Just use the code VICE35. Go to redcom1.com, check it out now all weekend. It's a unique time in the world right now. You might've let your diet go. Getting to the gym probably is pretty difficult or for maybe for some of you guys, impossible. When I started thinking about doing another readiness trials, I figured people probably right now have real life issues. Like they're depressed or their finances, you know, lost a job, maybe even lost a loved one. So that's probably not the right time to do a transformation contest, right? Well, that's exactly what I was thinking. I remember the moment when that all went through my head and I was like, wait, hell no, this is the best moment for a distraction for a goal, for a focus that isn't the news. I mean, the news is crazy. It's a great way to refocus your mind on something that isn't negative, like the riots, defunding the police, viruses, Kanye West for president. I have decided 
in 2020 to run for president. If you ask me a goal and a journey, plus being part of a community that are all going after the same thing is exactly what you need right now. We've done seven readiness trials now, and it's gotten bigger and better every time. We can't stop now, we're going even bigger. Last time we gave away $75,000 in cash and prizes, and our grand prize winner, Michael Sparks, won $50,000. This time we are truly going bigger, $100,000. That's right, 100 grand, and it's not even the biggest change. The biggest change was you spoke and we listened. And we're now going to have 15 cash winners with the top five people winning $10,000. And for the first time ever, we're going to have free coaching to help you make the most dramatic change. We even enlisted the help of some of our celebrity coaches and judges, Jesse Bowen, Adam Shearer, and Martin Ford. It sucks to say, but if the money and the goals aren't enough, think about your health. We're learning a lot about COVID, and there's a tremendous amount of confusion and even misinformation out there. But one thing we know for sure is that people who are in better physical shape do much better if they catch it. Having a body mass index of 30 or higher actually increases a person's risk of developing a severe case of COVID-19 by 27%. And a body mass index of 40 or higher doubles the person's risk. That's what the Harvard doctors say. You can either enter by buying one of the Redcon 1 readiness stacks, or if you're already loaded up on Redcon 1 subs, you can buy a ticket to enter the contest for $75. Tickets will go on sale August 15th. When you buy either the stack or the tickets, you'll receive an email exactly explaining how you're gonna enter and how to submit the pictures. Don't worry, we won't show your pictures to anybody unless you're a finalist for the money. Before submissions are due August 24th through the 31st. You'll have that rolling week to decide when you wanna start and then you're gonna have 12 weeks from that point forward to finish the contest. Remember, this is a transformation challenge, not a physique or bodybuilding competition. The best and most dramatic change will be rewarded. Look. 2020 hasn't gotten off to a good start. I'd like to challenge you to hit the restart button with Redcon 1 and change your life forever. excited to welcome to the show General David Petraeus, who is among the most prominent United States military figures of the post 9-11 era, having served 37 years in the United States Army and as the director of the CIA. Welcome to the show, General. Good to be with you, Aaron. Thanks. Yeah, we, we were very honored and excited to have you on the show. A lot of people in our, uh, in our Redcon 1 community were very, very excited. A lot of our uh, military guys and girls uh, servicemen and women were super excited. A lot of them actually served underneath you, uh, who were super pumped, right? Who, who oh, came yeah. on? Who told us, man, we can't wait to see him on. Had two people today. We're like, all right, at the gym today. <laughs> two people came up. Yeah, so really, really excited. Thank you for being on the show. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Thanks. Yeah, absolutely. So my my first question is: so the day you walk into the CIA, you're now the director of the CIA. You sit down at your desk. Do you do you get read into all of the the secrets. Do they open the book of secrets for you, General, and say, here's here's everything? Well, they do, but uh, you can't get everything in one day, obviously. Uh, and to be perfectly honest, I've had quite a transition period. Uh, keep in mind that my predecessor, uh, Leon Panetta, had already gone to the Department of Defense. He was a Secretary of Defense. So uh, there was an acting director who was overseeing it. He was the deputy director. Uh, but during the transition period, I was going out there every day 
and you, you're getting progressively read on to different programs, but really it's a process that almost never stops. Uh, the most significant ones are brought to you, the most urgent ones, uh, the ongoing operations about which you have to be informed, uh, they're obviously laid out for you right away. Keep in mind, of course, that, you know, I'd literally been at war for, gosh, or deployed for, I think, something like seven of the previous 10 years. And in every one of those deployments, starting with a year in Bosnia, where I was not only a NATO one star, I was also the deputy commander of the Joint clandestine Joint Task Force that was doing the hunt for the war criminals and then actually did the first counterterrorism operations after 9-11, even before we went into Afghanistan. And all of these involved uh, substantial elements of the intelligence community led primarily, of course, overseas, over always, by the CIA station chief. And then, of course, I had uh, four years in Iraq uh, a year in Afghanistan and another year and a half plus at U.S. Central Command, which is all the Middle East and Central and part of South Asia. Uh, in every one of these, the station chiefs and then the uh, division uh, leaders of these different regions uh, were very close partners, as was the CIA director himself. Again, Leon and I would co-chair for example, a, I think it was quarterly or semi-annual, we would actually get together and do a counterterrorism uh, conference that would bring in the Joint Special Operations Command, uh, would bring in other intelligence community organizations, uh, and then typically the uh, commanders of the area that were most engaged in this as well. So I've been working very, very closely with CIA officers and the CIA leadership. Uh, now what you've got to do is get into the real nuts and bolts. And of course, I obviously had to focus on an area that was much larger than that which I had been riveted on during the previous seven years, which was again, the greater Middle East and learn a bit about the rest of the world as well. Uh, what had gone on there while I'd been preoccupied out in uh, again, Iraq and Afghanistan and all the other places. We were very proud when I was the commander of U.S. Central Command that, uh, you know, we had 90% of the world's problems and 90% of the deployed special operations forces of the U.S. at that time. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, uh, you, you definitely came in at an extremely active time. I can only imagine being there at the CIA after um, your experience being on the, actually on the ground had to be a, a huge benefit for you. I would imagine most, I, I don't know the history of the CIA in terms of the directors, but I, I think you'd be somewhat unique as, in terms of having that experience. No, actually there have been a number of military uh, officers who have directed the CIA. Um, one of my immediate predecessors, not Leon Panetta, but uh, before him, um, Michael Hayden, uh, was a serving four-star in that position. Part of the time he was still on active duty, then part uh, he retired. Uh, the very, the founder, if you will, of the forerunner of the CIA, the, the OSS uh, during World War II was led by an active duty two-star at that time, uh, General Donovan. In fact, the Donovan Award is one of the greatest of, of accolades that one can receive uh, if you're connected with either special ops or uh, intelligence operations or other things, actually, because a number of us have gotten it that weren't directly in those communities, but certainly had those community or working very, very closely with those communities. But it's an extraordinary organization. Uh, it is, you know, it's truly filled with what are termed the quiet professionals. Uh, 
Uh, and, you know, there's none of the, you know, the brass bands, there's no ceremonies uh, that are for outsiders, everything is inside. Uh, and they join the organization knowing that they're not going to be, even be able to tell their neighbors what it is that they do. Uh, sometimes even their own family can't know all the intricate details, obviously, of the activities that they're pursuing. So, again, it's a very, very special group of, of Americans, and it was a real privilege to be part of it and indeed to, you know, as an entry-level job to be the director. Um, I imagine. I imagine it was. So um, one of the things we're thinking, we're wondering about, so when you sit down and you hear all the things, whether it, it got read in over a, a period of time, was there anything that you were really shocked? Obviously, uh, you can't tell us any of the things, but was there anything that you were shocked about that you were uh, totally? Yeah, sure. I mean, on a regular basis. Yeah. I mean, there was some, you know, there's this mythology that the CIA can't recruit human sources anymore. That is absolute mythology, let me assure you. And that, you know, that all, all we're doing is just monitoring a bunch of satellite shots or something like that. And, you know, it's all technical stuff. That is not at all the case. The CIA's real focus still is recruiting human sources uh, around the world. So as they're showing, that is a, the, cover from an MRE box uh, with a purple heart on it that was presented to me by my own soldiers in a battalion that I commanded after one of them accidentally shot me in a very aggressive live fire exercise. It was an M16 round. Um, I was standing next to General Jack Keene. Some of you will have seen him on Fox News and so forth. A big mentor of mine at that time. He was a one-star general and I was a lieutenant colonel. Uh, he really enjoyed going out in the field with our battalion, again, because they had a very aggressive spirit and live fires were the, the penultimate uh, demonstration of that. But this one, uh, again, a soldier tripped after knocking out a bunker with a grenade and just happened his weapon came down across him. He squeezed probably as he as he hit. He was hit so hard he was knocked out briefly and it squeezed off a round that went through my chest. And thankfully, it was over the A in Petraeus rather than over the A in Army. Uh, or I obviously wouldn't be here. And thankfully, obviously, it didn't it didn't hit uh, an artery. It actually nicked one. But as you know, if it hits an artery, you're you're gone within a minute or so. It was quite an quite an experience. Uh, you know, I learned how medical evacuation operations work. They had an air medevac out there within I don't know, you know, ten minutes or so. And I was in the hospital at Fort Campbell, Kentucky, the post hospital, very quickly. And they then cut an X in my side, no anesthesia or anything. He said, this is really going to hurt. And he jammed a plastic tube in and that put suction so that it would get the fluid out of me because you're basically suffocating on your own fluid uh, if they don't, because there's still a lot of bleeding and other uh, liquid. And once they get that in, you're probably going to make it. And then they put me back in a helicopter, flew me down to Vanderbilt Medical Center. And of all things, the surgeon there uh, who was brought in, it was a Saturday morning, uh, and the on-call surgeon was none other than the guy named Dr. Bill Frist. Uh, this is obviously well before he ran for the Senate and then became the majority leader of the Senate. But, you know, we used to jokingly say that I was dying to meet Dr. Frist. <laughs> um, he did a wonderful job and, you know, cut, they cut you open and have a bunch of chest tubes in and all this kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, he pulls, he cauterized that one artery and then pulled out all the bone and stuff that ha happily hadn't hit any major 
bones either. So I was very, very fortunate. I just went out the back. There's a much bigger hole in the back than there is in the front. But uh, it was, again, it was an interesting experience. It's one of the two times that way to put it. medics <laughs> saved my life. 37 years in the military, uh, and that's the way you get you end up getting shot, huh? <laughs> well, that was it. Yeah. You know, again, uh, anything for realism and training, I guess. <laughs> yes, so. That guy, he's never going to live that down. No. Man. That'll be that well, up. you know, what we did is uh, he was a very good soldier. And, you know, people make mistakes in life. And uh, thankfully, obviously, nobody died as a result of this one. So that's why we could joke around that that box carton uh, that was cut off again an MRE case uh, soldiers wrote all kinds of things over it uh, and you know they're all very humorous um, and you know this this soldier said yeah I'm really really embarrassed you know it's supposed to be one shot one kill uh, obviously it takes a little bit more than that with you uh, and they had that purple heart that's on there that I just gestured to and we were very famous for tying all our gear down the veterans will understand this you know you tie everything down so that in the middle of the night when you're doing an air assault or in, if you're in an airborne unit jumping out of planes if stuff comes loose you don't lose it um you really don't want to lose your canteens you don't want to lose a, a variety of the other items that that literally can come off so they even tied it on there as you saw with 550 cords it's called that green nylon cord and they did burn the ends for the veterans so that they know that it was all done to standard but so I had that soldier brought down uh, about two or three days later to Vanderbilt Medical Center. I asked the chaplain to bring him down and basically say, hey, big guy, you know, no, no big thing. Um, you know, you still got to run in the cross country race and help us win that competition, especially since I'm not going to be able to be in it uh, this time. But and he did. Uh, and then uh, I said, you know, your slaughter ranger school is still good. So don't worry. <laughs> So, because you mentioned Ranger School, I, I have to ask. So, you know, so uh, when I, we were doing our research on you and, and, and doing our due diligence, right? One of the things I thought was really cool uh, was that you were uh, a top graduate, the top graduate at Ranger School. And I know that uh, the OCOR, the, the whole thing, right, is that you are not a, a, a officer and an enlisted guy. You do the same thing, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the so standards are no, no preference. Uh, I think you actually, you take, you take off your rank. Yeah. Um, for the course so there's you're not wearing any rank there's no unit insignia there's nothing you're just all all equal you're all ranger candidates and you're all treated equally rough or bad or whatever but uh <laughs> that was a great course it's really you know it's at heart it is a leadership course but it is to learn about leadership under adversity and the adversity that they create uh, is through enormous physical activity, uh, lots of road marches. That's my encouraging. So here she is. She, is <laughs> if I can't answer a question, she can. Let me unpack this. There she is. She's looking at you now. Um, she's my she's my wingman here, uh, the family dog that we have custody of during the, the lockdown here. But um, the idea is, again, to see how people perform under adversity. And yeah. the adversity is so you get very little sleep. In our day, in the final, I think it was the final 10-day exercise, which was in the swamps of Florida, there are three phases, one at Fort Benning, Georgia. Um, then you go into the mountains north of North Georgia, which are frigid in the winter. We were very, very, very cold. And there's real concern uh, about uh, cold injuries as a result of that. 
and then you go to the swamps of Florida in the panhandle. And you, in our day, we got one sea uh, ration, the forerunner of MREs per day. So you're literally, you're really very, very hungry at the end of this. And everyone lost weight. I went in there probably weighing only, you know, 145 pounds or something like that. And still came out, I think, 15 pounds less, which uh, that's serious. Wow. You know, so that's we're really, that's like the you know, we're all cleaned up and we, and, you know, and they call my name and you come running out saying who, because you're going to get this award. And my wife, who hadn't seen me, you know, for nine weeks or something like that, said, my God, you know, we thought it was a group of refugees uh, <laughs> because you all look so malnourished. Uh, and then we would go out and it was very unhealthy, actually, and they would stop doing that. It just wasn't a wise way to go. There's still only, I think now it's two meals a day, but they very carefully monitor the caloric intake. Yeah. And monitor a lot of other stuff because there have been some tough injuries over the years. There, in the swamps in particular, there were some flash floods that uh, killed uh, a significant number of students uh, in one very, very tough evening. You're in the water for a long period of time, and much of it, the time you're up to almost your waist in water. You're just going on these patrols and. Again, it's a tough, tough course, and they want to see how you perform when you have to lead a group uh, that is just so tired that we had to put ropes on some individuals to keep them from wandering off at night. Uh, you're constantly, if you if you stop at all, uh, you actually start to nod. Uh, so it's, again, you're right at the edge of, of what your existence, and it's one of the very few times in my entire life where I was pushed to that limit. Uh, one of the others, interestingly, was when I was a two-star general and the commander of the great 101st Airborne Division for the fight to Baghdad, the invasion of Iraq. Um, and because we had 254 helicopters, 72 of which were Apache helicopters, um, we were fighting at night and during the day. So it was a 24-hour operation uh, for us. I think that's when I was a four-star in... Afghanistan, actually. Um, so we were just so, you know, we were pushing, 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 and the Apaches would go out at night. And these are really dangerous operations. I mean, in another unit of the same size as our Apache unit got completely shot up. The entire brigade, every single helicopter came back with bullets through it, and it grounded it for the rest of the fight to Baghdad. So again, this is, this is significant risk. And I felt I should be, you know, at the very least monitoring it together with the brigade commander uh, of that organization. But after about, you know, two and a half or three days, uh, we reached a point where if I sat down, I would fall asleep. If I stood up and leaned down on a table, I'd fall asleep. And then the command sergeant major who was with me for four of those combat tours, uh, he, came over and said, hey, sir, you know, this is why God created one-star generals and deputy commanders, and yours is about to take over from you. We've got a little tent set up for you over here, and you can go in, and, and we'll roll out a sleeping bag. You need some rest. And, you know, he woke me up six hours later or something like that, and we got back at it. But again, fatigue is a very significant issue, uh, as you well know, and uh, as is just muscle fatigue, with which you are very uh, well acquainted given your activities as a bodybuilder and, and physical fitness focus. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. You know, we, and we have a lot of, we have quite a few, uh, uh, uh either work for us or, or part of the, the team 
uh, tier one operators who have been who have done training similar to that or, or, or have been through that. You know, Johnny Primo, who is a, a Green Beret, and we have a, a, quite a few uh, SEAL Team Six guys. And and I, I think of when he was taught when uh, General, when you're talking about the story, I was thinking about um, Sean. Uh, Rosario talking about his boat crew where he had a guy on his boat crew during the buds that tried to jump out of the boat uh, during uh, during their last uh, uh, long paddle. I don't think at night, it was a night one during hell week where and I forget the name of the evolution, but he jumped out trying to go see his mother and he had to they had to rescue the guy and bring him back on because the guy literally thought in the middle of the night and in, in uh, there in Coronado that he needed to rescue his mother, who obviously was not there, right? I mean, there's all kinds of strange things, these stories about people. I mean, I, there was a guy that we were on a patrol and, you know, I looked around and he wasn't following me. And so I went back and got me and he was pushing at a tree. And I said, what are you doing, uh, big guy? And he said, oh, I'm, I'm putting money in this uh, machine. I need some food. Um, so we had these are, you know, the, there are some real bizarre stories. As I said, we put ropes on people to keep them from just wandering mm -hmm. off. They were, you know, on the edge of sort of fatigue, delirium or something like that. And you're moving very extensive distances, again, especially during that period where you're in water for much of the day. Uh, and you're just flat worn out. It's very, very challenging. And, uh, and certainly what the seals go through in buds is just extraordinary. Uh, it's it's truly superhuman. The same with the selection process for uh, for Green Berets for Special Forces, and obviously the Delta, Delta selection process is just again off the charts. For the so for that's always one of the things I, I'm interested in, and in, in the Delta guys, Green Beret as well is so it's very you know so I'm a bigger guy, you know I'm six two two fifty or so. Eric's a uh, bigger guy. But there are guys who are that size, who are bigger. No, I'm not seeing, no, we have our friend uh, Noah Steer who buys the products, who is um, significantly six, uh, six, six, 300 plus. Yes. And uh, so, like the amount of wear and tear, like so you mentioned, you were 145 would go in, uh, and then when you finish, you were 130, uh, 15 yes. pounds less. So, for these bigger guys, like I could never, I don't think my body could physically take a ruck march with 40 mile ruck march, right? What is the, what do you think is the, the, the difference between the guys that, cause there's gotta be a physicality part, even if you're mentally strong enough, you may not physically be able to do it. Well, really the, the tier one operators, as they're called the, again, those that are in the very select units, uh, that are part of our standing counterterrorism force, part of the joint special operations commands, well-known Delta SEAL team six, uh, the Rangers are in that grouping as well since nine 11. But in particular, again, the the SEAL Team Six and then uh, Delta are truly extraordinary uh, physical specimens, and they come in all sizes and shapes. In fact, in many respects, you know, think about what the SEALs do and the, just the sheer amount of swimming that they do, um, and they are really extraordinary endurance athletes. And it's hard to be huge as an endurance athlete. Now, once they get in on the team, once you're in uh, Delta or what have you, perhaps there's an opportunity to build up more. And certainly for ruck marching, you've got to have really sturdy legs. So it's about really being an all around athlete. In fact, during that time that I was in Bosnia, uh, we used to, we had a rotation of these two different organizations there. Um, and I was 
quite fit in those days and we used to have a competition now they wouldn't run with me and i wouldn't swim with them but we and everything was was body weight see that it's same with you i would be delighted to compete against you at the gym <laughs> any day of the week but just our own body weight uh so you've got to push that up and down pull it up and down all the rest of this stuff uh that's what you would have to do and candidly that's you know to my advantage so yeah. it's often the wiry guys that have real strength in that wiry frame who are the best in those kinds of competitions and so we would go in a gym and we'd do a rotation three times what i'm going to tell you which was first just regular push-ups and by the way they'd do it facing me and i would hold them down because you want to you're going to do it at my pace and you're going to go all the way down and you're going to lock out all the way up um, and then we would have uh, there's a couple of different ab exercises one would be leg spreaders and again they just do it with me and the first round i'm just feeling them out getting a sense for them then we would do uh, uh dips and we try to have dip bars that face each other which is what we ultimately would have when i was a three-star at this command and staff college for example um so they, again they're doing it with you and you're going all the way down uh then we would do there's a an ab exercise which is odd but you have your fingertips behind your ears your legs are out and you have to come up, but it's not a crunch. You have to come all the way up. It's called the Eagle Ab after the Screaming Eagles of the 101st. It's very, very difficult, especially if you don't practice it, which of course I did. Um, and then we would do uh, uh, pull-ups and it was hands facing away. And again, dead hang and you have to hit your Adam's apple. So there's standards have to be, because again, this is fierce competition. Yeah. Um, and then the final exercise is really, really tough. I personally think it's the toughest ab exercise known to man, which is hanging and you bring up and just touch your shoelaces to the bar. It doesn't matter how you do it, but you touch your shoelaces, not your toes, not the heel of your shoe, not your ankles, your shoelaces, and then all the way back down to a dead hang and then back up. And try those. They are very, very challenging. And again, this is a period of my life where I've been doing this kind <laughs> of routine very, very regularly. So that's just one set. And then we'll do it three times. Yeah. And at the end of that, you know, the last time is where you're trying to go see who hits muscle fatigue first. And I can tell you that the, the seals were extraordinarily just off the charts uh, fit. But I was reasonably fit as well at that time. And, you know, when they would ask me how many push-ups I could do, I would usually say one more than you, big guy, uh, <laughs> especially if they were a big guy. So this Good. is a little bit like challenging, um, you know, a, a pro basketball, not a pro, oh, yeah. but some great basketball player to one-on-one. -on -one and they say, sure, but it's full court one-on-one. -on -one. It's a runner's game. So you've always got to have your edge. Uh, and we had great fun in the, in the gym in, in Sarajevo during the year that I was out there when we so were at your, at your in best. the middle of chasing bad guys. <laughs> at your best, I have to ask. So the dead hang pull-ups, what do you think you could do dead hang pull-ups at your very best? Your, your, your peak fitness? Um, without I think probably peak would be uh, 30. It's pretty awesome. And, and again, this is dead hang. So dead all the people that, you know, they're just coming down to here or even here. It's massively different to come all the way down. When I was a colonel at, at Fort Bragg, commander brigade of the 82nd Airborne Division, I think I did 24 or 26 in some competition. But we'd already done a rope rope climb, 
and would have done something else as well. So in that in that realm, again, that's without anything before it. And you know, you're warmed up, but well, not incredible. not at all tired. So I have a video, we have a video of me uh, versus one of my employees who thought he beat me, and we ended up tying at 21 dead hang pull-ups. Um, but uh, that that is a lot of dead hang pull-ups. Again, the folks that don't do them to standard won't be that impressed. But it's which is why you always do again at, at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, which was the last time where I really ran competitions. Uh, this is between my three and four star tours in Iraq. Um, we had these bars built so that you're facing each other uh, on dips. You actually had four stations, so you could you could challenge three students at a time, <laughs> and then the same with the the bars uh, as well. Um, and that's the way to do it if you're competing because you want exactly the same standard and you'd actually just hang there for a while. Um, Cause again, it's also, there's also a psychological element to this. Oh yeah. We did these for years. Um, I actually did do these on occasion as a four star out in the region. Uh, and there was finally a Marine who beat me in uh, Bahrain was the first I'd never, ever been beaten ever on abs. Wow. Um, finally, because I we ran these competitions for, you know, all the way from when I was a young officer. And it's something that obviously over time, the muscle memory just conquers all. Yeah. So anyway, but I don't know how we got off on all this stuff. <laughs> no, it's actually it's perfect for, for us. For, for us, it's, it's very interesting, right? Oh, of course. That's right. Yeah. yeah. I, I, you know, look, we, we, I get it. I think, I think it's a really cool way to, I mean, I'm sure you, you thought about this, you know, in the beginning, but it's a great way to, to, interact with your your guys you right are exactly and, right so yeah. all the way through full colonel so when i was a brigade commander even there at the 82nd airborne division where we had a brigade combat team of about 3500 paratroopers i was the greater so and i had to compete every time and during the cycles when we would be doing these competitions we might do three of these a week and so uh, in those days, it was push-ups, buddy-held sit-ups, uh, a two-mile run on a track, and the track is slower, and you had to, the, the minimum standard for a two-mile run on the track was 11.54. You had to get, you had to do 82 push-ups, 92 sit-ups. These are the minimums, and you actually had to do more than the minimums to add up the points. Uh, then, as I said, a two mile and under 1154. And by the way, you, you've now done max push-ups and sit-ups. So you feel like you're running with your pec muscles, you know, down the track. And there's a, you know, a scheduled amount of time between each one, um, a minimum amount. And then, uh, we, then we would do uh, dips and the final event was pull-ups. But I had, I was the again, the greater for it to ensure that the standard, I mean, this was fierce. I had lieutenants arguing with me in the middle of their dips. And I'd say, oh, you didn't go down far enough. <laughs> Sir, God damn it, I went down, you know, I'd say, no, hey, lieutenant, you didn't go down far enough. But I mean, they're trying to be in the top 10 was a really, really big deal in this. Actually, just to get it, uh, because we only had, I think we were still under 50 total in two years this is a very tough the, the grades that you had to get uh in the dips i think the minimum was 12 or 15 and pull-ups minimum was 12 i believe so but we always had these over the years and they were great fun and because i was the grader i'd be out there with a private and a lieutenant and a 
captain and a sergeant um, would usually do about five at a time, just so that you, you moved it swiftly through. But it was a great way to get to know soldiers. And, and, and it was a great way to show the boss is serious about physical fitness. Because, yeah. you know, if an infantry unit, especially a light infantry unit, air assault, airborne, which is what I was typically back and forth between, um, you know, your body is a, is a weapon system. And we were deadly serious about this. And again, the various uh, activities that we did, we did a lot of road marching as well. Um, and, you know, you, you get paid to lead from the front in those kind of organizations. And that's what I tried to do. Yeah, that's great. And it's also it's one of those things where it shows you fitness is the ultimate kind of equalizer. Because yeah. um, like you said, it didn't matter if it was a private, four-star general. Everybody's doing the same thing, competing on the same level. And that's the great thing we always talked about with the bodybuilding world. It doesn't matter what your background is, religion, race. It's just who's ever no, the I mean, it's a great point. I also used to say they used to give age points. So, you know, you if you're in the 18 to 21, that was that uh, standard of 82, 92, and 1154, and then uh, pull-ups and dips. Um, I said, guys, you know, this age stuff, this is nonsense. The enemy is not looking over his rifle at you oh. saying, wait a second, is this guy in the 36 to 40 category, in which case I give him one more step before I pull the trigger, or is he 18, 21, in which case I, you know, this is... So again, there was some logic, there is logic to why that existed. Um, but again, it didn't pass muster at the end of the day when you're on the battlefield. And that was really the issue. So, but we were very, very serious about that stuff. And, and the units in which I was privileged to serve uh, took this again, very, very seriously. We also believe that life is a competitive endeavor and just embrace it. You don't get a t-shirt just for showing up. You don't get a trophy just for being being there. You get it if you are in the top whatever. Yeah. Uh, we had competitions for everything. Uh, and they always ended with a ruck run, uh, whether it was an infantry squad or a mortar squad or a reconnaissance team or sniper squad or whatever it was. Um, that was, and we would all, the leaders would all be standing there cheering them on at the end and would pin medals on them right then and there. So the reward was obvious right at that point. And again, that's how you, that's how you build a culture of people that are fiercely competitive, but knowing that you're not just competing to be the best individual, you're also competing to be the best team player. Yeah. And, and that manifests itself in a variety of different ways. When we were doing the fight to Baghdad, there were three US Army divisions. Um, you had the 82nd Airborne Division had a brigade of paratroopers. They were both mostly sitting in Kuwait initially waiting. They wanted to jump on Baghdad International Airport. You had the 101st Airborne Division with 20,000 soldiers and, as I said, 250 or helicopters. We wanted to air assault on Baghdad International Airport. That was going to be our rendezvous with destiny, the words that mean a lot to the Screaming Eagles. And then you had the 3rd Infantry Division mechanized which was the Abrams M1 tanks and Bradley fighting vehicles. They also had a smaller uh, aviation component. And we then ended up supporting them with our Apaches. Um, the truth is, and they wanted to, you know, thunder run to Baghdad International Airport. And a few days into that battle, I realized that they were the ones who were best uh, trained, equipped. Uh, they'd spent months out in the desert. They'd been rotating through the Kuwait desert six months at a time, 
uh, for something like two or three years. They were really extraordinary. And I said, guys, we are going to anything that commander asked for, we're going to give it to him. And so he called up. Um, Marn Six was his call sign. Mine was Eagle Six. He he asked if we had any 155 millimeter howitzer ammunition because they were running low. I said, yeah, I'll not, I'm not, not just going to give you the ammunition. I'll give you the unit because it'll get it to you faster. He called up and asked for an infantry battalion. We only had nine of them. And I gave him the battalion, in fact, that I had commanded when I was in the 101st Airborne Division as a lieutenant colonel when I got shot. I realized that our contribution to that fight, most significant, would be to support them, follow and support. They were blowing by these big cities of five, 600,000 people, and we're following them. And I said, we need to go into these cities and clear them and get them off our lines of communication. And that's what we did. And that's the kind of dust that we encountered, as you can see there. Really extraordinary. We had crashes because of that dust. Now, that's an infantry soldier, and that, that, that's the uniform that we had in the very beginning, the desert camouflage uniform. Uh, that is very familiar stuff. And now you can see why a soldier's body is a weapon system and why you've got to be fit to do this. 100%. So you mentioned uh, you mentioned uh, winners and losers, and I think uh, for both Eric and I, who have young kids, that's a big thing that both of us instill. And, and it's very it's almost an unpopular thing these days, where everybody is supposed to get a trophy for participating, and everybody needs to be equal, and uh, and it should all be you know every can be congratulated for even trying. Uh, but I'm a very big believer here with my with my kids, but also here in the office, we have competitions, and there are losers and winners, and hopefully the losers get inspired the fact that they lost i know how i am i've lost many many things exactly yeah. i've won yeah. but i but yeah. i get inspired right to push to to be a winner one day now you know there was a most inspirational captain company commander i ever saw was a guy named fred johnson uh, who ultimately was a full colonel uh, deputy commander of a striker brigade during the surge in iraq um, and he'd served in afghanistan as well really extraordinary officer and he had these, he'd walk into the office and he'd say, you know, sir, winners win stuff. And I say, Fred, that is very profound. And it really was. I mean, winners do win stuff. They don't just show up and participate. Now, don't get me wrong. I think participation is key. I think, and again, you have to understand what your kids are capable of. And, you know, it took, took a long time, actually, for our son to show that he had physical ability. Um, he was a computer guy, went to MIT, then he joins ROTC, and he ends up, he's on the ground fighting in Afghanistan as a rifle platoon leader when I was the four-star, um, and ultimately went back many times, uh, several times more with the Ranger Regiment, Special Operations, and um, now doing a JD MBA at Harvard. He, but again, it took, now as a mountain climber, he's run marathons, I think he ran his first one in, I think it was under 315 or 310. Um, and, uh, and again, quite an extraordinary, uh, endurance athlete, but that was not coming out in the, certainly not in elementary school and, and high school. No. And, and, and ultimately, right. I mean, not everybody is, but, but no, even, even, yeah, and even if they're not, do, I mean, what you really want to do is you want to create a culture and, uh, an environment that brings out the best in every person, knowing that, again, we all are going to have limitations. Um, again, I could take every product that you have and hang out in the gym all day, and I don't think I would ever actually look like you, partly because I'd still be cycling or 
or running, but uh, which sort of counteracts the whole effort. Yeah. But again, no, you just have to realize what we're trying to do is help, you know, that old army recruiting slogan, be all that you can be. Yeah. We want to just create an environment in which people can be all that they can be. And, and always trying, obviously, to, to achieve their absolute utmost potential. Yeah, and I think there's something to be said about healthy competition. It's not to beat anybody down, but it's, you know, yep. in the office, like Aaron and I, we still sell. We're not on the sales team, but we still sell because we try to set a marker for the sale. Sure. always have to keep yep. chasing us because yep. I, I call it maybe cockiness on my part, but I'm going to be like, no, I'm, I'm always going to be number one. And it's just like, I want one of these guys to beat one of us one day. You know, that's what you hope is you foster that kind of fire sure. that they want to keep excelling. Exactly. Pick up the skills. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly like uh, General did here with the, with the dips and the push-ups. And he says, like, hey. No, I'd say I'm a shot at the title, big guy. You know, I'll give you a shot <laughs> you at the title. We used to do the interviews for officers that wanted to come. Uh, when I was a brigade commander in the 82nd Airborne Division, um, there were a lot of majors on Fort Bragg on that huge post, the home of the Airborne Special Ops. They all want to be in a brigade and then really in a battalion because that's the key qualifying position they have to fill uh, to be qualified to move on and hopefully for them to command a battalion. And so they would, you know, they'd ring up my adjutant or somebody and say, hey, you know, I'd like to interview with your boss to come down to the 1st Brigade of the 82nd. Um, and, you know, my adjutant or I would say, yeah, sure, come on down, you know, come on down PT gear. He'll meet you at 6, 6 a.m. out in front of the brigade sign uh, on the street. And this is Arden Street, which is just full of paratroopers going up and down. And we would have a PT session uh, and there the individual had to meet minimums. I wouldn't run slower than uh four miles in 34 minutes was the minimum but if you wanted to go faster you know bring it on let's 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 see what you got um and certainly you know at a certain point in time age does slow you down a bit but you know even after i got shot that time um and no then i had a broken fracture of my pelvis um in a free fall accident as well medic saved me again and that took a lot, it was much worse actually in terms of recovery. I was on crutches for something like five months or so. And, but within a year and a half of that still ran a 6340, I think it was army 10 miler um, at the age of, I don't know, I was in my, it was a, I was a two-star general by then. So again, you know, at that point, obviously those guys are gonna, they have much faster wheels at some point than you do. But it doesn't mean you can't still get out there and try to be, again, all that you can be. Yeah, that's great. That's awesome. Yeah, I wouldn't want to run against you, but maybe wow. the dead hang pull-ups. I'm, I'm ready for that one whenever you're in Boca. You uh, be careful what you ask for. That's the only one. One, one, one more than you, big guy. I'm, I'm pulling up a heck of a lot less than you are. <laughs> you, now, you're I'm right. You're right. Do. You have an advantage. So if, if I win, then, no, you know, no deadlift, maybe, no bench you know. press, nothing with weights. <laughs> so one of the things you mentioned is is e equality and uh so when guys uh go through the 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 ranger school uh, or anything one of the big things you know because I, I visited buds recently uh coronado uh and uh i got a tour of the facility which is really cool and i got to see the the oak horse and the whole thing and um one of the things that that he well the, the gentleman who showed me around um who gave us the tour who is the uh a buds instructor 
talked a little bit about uh, females in, a, in, in that situation. And, uh, you know, when you talk about equality, right, that's one of the things that's, that's and this is a little bit of a controversial. Look, the biggest of the big ideas when it comes to that stuff is very, very clear. One standard for all. Yes. And as long as you adhere to that, I don't think anyone can argue. So it's interesting that you mentioned this because one of my uh, aides, um, he was a captain when I was a one star and then a two star. He was with me in Bosnia and then in the 101st Airborne Division for the first half of the first year in Iraq. Um, he ultimately, his final job, he commanded, by the way, two more times. He it also commanded my own battalion. Uh, in the 101st, when we were both in Afghanistan together, and that was not coincidental. That's a great battalion. He was a great battalion commander. His brigade command was the Ranger Training Brigade, the Airborne and Ranger Training Brigade. And he was the one, uh, together with his command sergeant major, who oversaw uh, the first females going through. And the big idea was the exact same standard, even when it came to shaving their heads. Uh, which all students do, you know, you get sort of a, this, the ultimate buzz cut. It's not quite shaved, but, uh, and so he went, that was the standard. Um, and every standard they have made sense, if you see what I mean. There's a reason why you need to do, I forget what it was, eight pull-ups or, and then it was, I don't know, 40 some odd sit push-ups, this kind of stuff. Um, there were re rationales for all of this. It made sense. And again, if you want to be a ranger, you do exactly the same. Uh, everyone does. And it, by the way, it's the same for it. There's no age points there either. We had a command sergeant major who went through uh, when I was the commanding, the, again, the 1st Brigade of the 82nd. One of our battalion sergeants major went uh, and did an extraordinary job. At one point, again, because they don't have any rank on, one of his fellow ranger students said, you know, God, you act just like a sergeant major. And he didn't respond, but of course he was one. In fact, I think he was a, an honor graduate. I went down to his graduation ceremony. So again, if it's one standard, you can't argue with that. And the Marines have done that very effectively with their infantry officer uh, course. The SEALs have done this. There have been one or two women, I think, that have gotten a certain way through. Um, BUDS is so demanding, um, though, I think that that... The, the accumulation, if you look at uh, buds, I think that's one that is difficult. We had, we had women in these competitions that I ran. And again, these were competitions that only the top, I don't know, maybe 1% of a very fit force. So it's already, you're already a paratrooper in the 82nd. You know, and only 1% of them could even qualify of the males. Uh, we didn't have any women initially in that brigade. Um, years later, when we had women, we could not actually find a woman who could meet the male standards for that. Because again, this is a 1%. Ranger school is very, very demanding, but it wasn't as demanding as our competition was. Um, and that's where you have challenges. And again, there's certain physiological differences that, again, the accumulated pounding and so forth, I think, uh, of buds in particular uh, is very challenging. There are certainly, again, extraordinary world-class, obviously, endurance athletes that can do that. Um, but 
there are very, very few of them that I know of in the military. You, you literally have to be almost a, a professional, I think, uh, to meet the kind of standard that they have. Yeah, and I think that's kind of our, our point of view here, too, is just it's whoever's the best, you know, if you can meet the standard for the job, it doesn't matter yeah. who you are, but you have to meet the standard. And for yep. you, being in combat where lives yep. are on the line, you wouldn't want to adjust the scale for someone based on no. religion, whatever it is, because yep. then if they can't meet the demand, someone dies. So Yeah. You know, by the way, when this was all under consideration, I was very much an advocate of, again, one standard. Now, when it comes to being in different skills, you should have actually different physical standards. I mean, if you're in an artillery unit uh, where you're having to pick up, let's say, 105 howitzer shells and you know move them around, figure out what a logical standard is for how much you would have to do that in a row, and that should be your standard. But by the way, the men have to meet that then too. And the truth was that they did not all meet it. Um, and so really this whole exercise of allowing women to go into every different skill and including special operations was a good exercise in determining, okay, what really is the standard and why is there something, is there logic to that? Um, and if so, again, everyone has to adhere to it. And there, there have been a number of women now that have, I think, they're way into the double digits. I, I saw the numbers recently. It's many dozens who have now made it through ranger school. And that's an extraordinary credit to anybody to go through ranger school. But great to see uh, women meet that same standard. I don't think I'd make it through ranger school. Probably <laughs> <laughs> me either, probably. No, we'd be the artillery guys. Yeah, I need to be. Like we a, need to be way younger yeah. than me and you to be in go through ranger school. Yeah. I, have, I have a feeling I'd be I'd be damaged somewhere in the middle. You want me to? Getting. You want me to hump some shit around? You want me to load up? <laughs> you know, load a grenade launcher? I, I'm good, but yeah, yeah endurance. That's about it. Uh, so, so one of the things for us, uh, General, is you know both of us are in leadership positions here at, at Redcon One, and, and we have about 150 employees here or so now. And uh, the one thing that I always think about, you know, is leading from the front. And I tell my, I have three little boys and I talk to them about that quite a bit. And you mentioned it. And, uh, and we do, we do our best to do that. Um, what tips would you say for an entrepreneur, a person, maybe not even in the military that wants to be a better leader and, and lead his, you know, his men or his women into, uh, into their own personal battle, whether it's uh, packing packages here at Redcon One or in their marketing department or whatever, what, what kind of tips do you have? Well, for, you've got to provide energy. Uh, you have to provide example. You have to provide encouragement. You have to provide understanding because folks do have bad days and tough periods. And there are issues at home or in relationships that can obviously intrude on the performance uh, at, at the work site and so forth. Um, there's got to be a reminder that this is actually important. Um, I used to go through a drill with all of the new soldiers. So I think it was once a week we would have new soldiers in. Uh, and as the commander of the 101st Airborne Division, I would speak to all the new uh, troopers that were arriving. And you'd have you know anywhere from 80 to, I guess, 150 or so. You'd have a pretty substantial um, small auditorium full. 
And I would go at one point and I'd say, never forget that every single one of you can be the most important person in the life of another fellow, another human being. And I'd say, okay, what's your, I'd call them, you know, what's your skill? I'd say, well, I'm a medic. Well, hell, I could tell stories about medics being the most important person, obviously with two experiences, my own. <laughs> um, you know, an infantryman, obviously you're the buddy for someone else. I mean, that person is depending on you. You talk about having someone else's back. Uh, you're going to be an air assault buddy uh, for someone else. And you work your way through these. And, you know, we got to one that was a, a fuel handler. And, he, you know, I could see him all sort of smirking and, you know, there's no way. And I said, let me tell you about the time when we were in an operation um, and it was a training exercise. And the enemy was literally targeting our fuel handlers because they knew that would ground our helicopters. Uh, and the helicopters were what were really keeping us in that fight. And there was one remaining fuel handler left. And that guy was just pumping fuel into these light attack helicopters, OH-58 Deltas, uh, about as fast as he could. And they turned the tide and we demolished the enemy uh, which is very rarely done at these ready, the Joint Readiness Training Center. This is the one in Louisiana, not the one, the National Training Center in the Mojave Desert. Um, and that fuel handler was the hero of the battle that day. So you've got to try to convey to people that what they're doing, it may be repetitive, it may be, you know, they're just a small cog in a wheel. Every cog in the wheel matters. Of course, you also want to invest in them. You want to develop them. You want to give them a path to improvement. You want to encourage them to seek improvement. Uh, it's very important to constantly inspire people again to try to be all that they can be uh, and show that you know, you're not going to be stocking shelves all your life. There is a way for you to learn from this, certainly, uh, and then you're going to move to doing this and then to that, and I can see a pathway you know, and to ask them, what are your aspirations? What are your goals? Where do you want to be five years from now, 10 years, 20 years? And when they tell you that, then you can tell them, okay, here's what you need to do. Uh, here are the areas that you should emphasize in your own personal development uh, as you take that forward. So again, all of these sort of tactics, techniques, and procedures of leadership, I think are hugely important. And again, they include lots of others. It's it's, it's one that is, you might term affirmative leadership. And this is where I say, um, hey, Aaron, I am so looking forward to that report that's going to be on my desk Monday at noon. The troops are talking already. They're saying you've got some great ideas. I don't know if I'll be able to sleep Sunday night. I'm so excited to see that. And what I've just done is in a much nicer way, in a more affirmative way, that shows that I believe in you and I expect great results from you. I've said to you what others might say, you better have that darn report on my desk at Monday at noon or I'll have a piece of your backside. Um, that's not the way to inspire people. That's not how you get buy-in. I mean, there's all of these tactics, techniques and procedures again of leadership. But of course, for the folks at the top, you are what are termed strategic leaders because you are making the decisions on the strategy. You're making, you know, do we add this product? Do we kill this one? Do we have a new initiative? How do we pursue this other? Oh, here's a new opportunity, a new use case. Um, and every one of these carries risk. 
And so a strategic leader like you has to get four tasks right. Most importantly, you have to get the big ideas right. Second, you've got to communicate the big ideas through the breadth and depth of the organization. Third, you have to oversee the implementation of the big ideas, and you just have to drive the campaign. And this is where all these other ideas, again, that I was just talking about, plus hiring, firing, rewarding, encouraging, uh, everything else. <clears throat> and then there's a fourth task that is often overlooked, as it was by Kodak, which had over 2,000 patents on digital photography, but for, didn't make the change from film to digital fast enough. <clears throat> so the fourth one is you have to determine how to refine the big ideas and do it again and again and again. Let me illustrate this. In the surge in Iraq, the surge that mattered most wasn't the surge of ideas, or what, I'm sorry, it wasn't the surge of forces, which is what everyone knows the surge as, the 25,000 additional men and women in uniform, US, that we got. It was a surge of ideas. It was a change in strategy from pulling out of the neighborhoods and handing off to Iraqi forces that can no longer handle the level of violence to going back into the neighborhoods because the only way you can secure the people is by living with them. That was a huge idea. And that's what we did. And we had to fight for these locations, 77 additional locations just in the Baghdad area alone. A number of others that, you know, you can't kill or capture your way out of an industrial strength insurgency. You have to reconcile with some of them and a host of others. Um, but then you have to communicate that through the breadth and depth of the organization. They all have to understand my intent. I actually wrote counterinsurgency guidance that I distributed, and I'd hit the send key on that every, you know, month or two when there was something, some significant change during the 19 and a half months that I was privileged to command that particular endeavor. Um, and then you have to oversee the implementation of the big ideas. This is the metrics. Are we winning or losing? It's, you know, pushing hard. It's working with your, your counterparts, the Iraqis, all the coalition, you know, the leaders above you, the leaders below you. I mean, the leaders below us questioned the idea of reconciliation with some of the bad guys because they had our blood on their hands and they were right. But I said, look, we again can't kill or capture our way out of this thing. We have to take as many of the rank and file away from the leaders of the Sunni insurgents. And then we're going to relentlessly go after the irreconcilables even more with these very special mission unit uh, organizations that I was speaking about before. General McChrystal and then Admiral McRaven amped up the pressure on that just amazingly. Um, and so again, you have to, push this stuff though. And I had to push Washington. I had to push uh, again, the Pentagon and all the rest of that. And General, uh, Secretary Gates and Admiral Mullen, incredible supporters. And at the end of the day, you know, we had the president behind us. The president had gone all in on the surge um, and he was absolutely there with us. One hour a week, he would devote to this starting at 7.30 in the morning on a Monday morning with his entire national security. If you want to show emphasis to your workforce, if you will, the US government, yeah. you make the first meeting of the week that, and he would have a video conference with the ambassador, Ambassador Ryan Crocker, phenomenal diplomat, and me, and he'd go immediately out to us and say, how's it going? What can we do for you? Tell us about this or that, and would have a conversation for an hour. 
Uh, he was a lot of other updates that he got during the week, of course, as well. But that set the tone uh, for the week. And then at least once a month, I would sit down with all the lessons learned chiefs. We had, I don't know, six or more of these. Each was led by a colonel from the Army, Marine Corps, Special Ops, uh, my counterinsurgency center, other places, and would sit down and determine how do we need to refine the big ideas. Plus, I'd do it weekly with the plans teams and with others to actually force yourself to, to, to confront reality and realize that, again, some of your big ideas need some refinement. Um, sometimes you literally have to leave some by the side of the road and pick up some other ones. Um, but that's how strategic leaders operate. And you know what I'm talking about, because even though you only have 100 or 150 people, and I had maybe, I don't know, I had 165,000 American men and women in uniform was a privilege, and then tens of thousands of coalition, and then probably 170,000 contractors. Um, you're still a strategic leader. Uh, and you're distinguished by having to get that first task right above all, which is, again, the essence of the big, getting the big ideas right. Think about this at Netflix. Reed Hastings, one of the greatest strategic leaders in the world today, up there with Jack Ma of Alibaba, uh, Jeff Bezos of Amazon. And he's literally reinvented Netflix four times. So the first time was, of course, the beginning. They said, we're going to get movies in the hands of customers without brick and mortar, the way that Blockbuster does it, and we're going to undersell them. So that's the big idea, communicate it, oversee it down here. How do we refine it? Two years later, doing great, but some others are catching on now. And by the way, Blockbuster's going out of business. There's two left now, by the way. I think Big Bend, Oregon, and someplace in Alaska that refuses to let it die. So they get down here, what do we do now? Well, he said, you know, broadband speeds are fast enough. Let's have them download uh, movies now. So that's a new big idea. Communicate it, oversee it. That, you know, I'm simplifying this. Yeah. And he's starting to go global in here as well and a few other big decisions. But that's the essence of it. Third big idea, because now everybody's having them download, said, let's do our own content. $100 million on House of Cards alone, Breaking Bad, all these other iconic uh, series. So that's a new big idea. Communicates it, oversees it, gets down here. Well, what are we going to do now? Because now everybody else is producing content as well. And they said, well, let's go into the big movie production business. Let's buy a couple of movie houses. Some of them are struggling. Yeah, it's just extraordinary the growth that they have enjoyed uh, and, and that they've achieved, really. This is not enjoying. They've built this. And he's thought it through. I've discussed, by the way, this intellectual construct for strategic leadership. And he does each of these, maybe not by the same name. But in particular, sitting down and determining how to refine the big ideas, forcing yourself uh, with all of your, your leaders and so forth. His fourth big idea was, we're going to do blockbuster movies. And you may remember the very first one, it was the one about General McChrystal in Afghanistan. Um, and, you know, he had Brad Pitt play him. Um, I think even Brad Pitt would acknowledge that perhaps it wasn't the greatest of his movies. It made General McChrystal out to be wooden, which he's not. He has a great sense of humor, actually. Uh, and all the rest of that. And besides, I was devastated that Brad Pitt didn't hold out to play me in that movie. But I've <laughs> never been able to stay awake long enough to actually see it to the point where there's the cameo appearance by uh, the Australian actor who was in Gladiator uh, was the one who played me ultimately. But again, that is strategic <laughs> leadership. There you go. You guys are fast. Your team is on its game.
They better be. <laughs> that <laughs> is serious, serious stuff. But anyway, you get the idea. And again, strategic leaders, you know, in the private sector in particular, I've developed this enormous respect for those who found a business, who start something, a startup, and then actually carry it all the way through and scale it the way that you all are doing. And you know the struggles with that. And there's days when you think it's going down, then there's catastrophic changes in the environment. Um, you know, you have a pandemic. How will that affect you? How do you respond to that? How do you market if you can't actually go out and, you know, knock on doors of places that are selling it? How do you get into e-tail? All of these are issues that obviously you have figured out uh, how to deal with. And again, that is the essence of strategic leadership. But it has all these other components that I mentioned, the tactics, techniques, and so forth that every leader uh, should seek to practice. But that additional one about getting the big ideas right, which, by the way, is not something, you know, no one of us is smarter than all of us together. It really should be something that is inclusive. You should try to involve people as much as you can. It should be transparent. It generally has to be iterative because, you know, I've never found the the right tree to sit under to get hit on the head by Newton's apple fully formed. I, you know, if I find a tree to sit under, I get hit on the head by a seed of a of a big idea. And then you have to shape it into reality of a big idea. And again, that's only done iteratively and with everybody contributing to it is best. I, I agree 100 percent. I mean, that's one thing. You know, we always say some of the big ideas have come from us, but it's oh, really yeah. come from everyone. And then, you know, like you say, you, we might have what we think is a great idea and we believe in it, but it's someone or other group of people internally that really take it and run with it and kind of bring that vision to life. I think the biggest thing that we've learned uh, in the last uh, the period of time that Redcon's been going and, and for me a little long for other businesses is that ultimately you can't be you can't focus on what you think is your right idea. You have to take what's best from everybody and be objective and say, well, maybe I don't know what's the right thing. Maybe somebody else, maybe somebody even for us, so we have a, a big shipping department, we have a big marketing department, we have a video team, we have et cetera, et cetera. And, and a lot of times the, the best ideas don't come from me and Eric, they come from somebody that maybe isn't, even, isn't not in, the, in marketing at all. You know, if we somebody- Well, asks, and, hey, and this see, this is idea. why- Consider you, that. You have to have a culture of learning um, you have to have a culture in which people aren't afraid to tell the boss that, you know, maybe his big idea is not as great as he thought it is. And if he tweets it this way or does it this, because they're the ones actually turning your big idea into reality on a shop floor or uh, in, in the marketing world or the video world or whatever. And they know something about this. Yeah. Um, and again, of course, the other idea is that you want them involved anyway. Right. Um, you know, even if you think you're actually can do their job better than they can. And that is possible in some places. Um, there was a, a truly brilliant um, US Army commander who I think would go into the conference room and he'd look at this guy and say, you know, I can, he's the operations officer. I can do his job better than he can. He probably can, he was one before he was the commander. I can do the supply guy's job. I can do the personnel. But he would never admit to himself that he couldn't do all of their jobs plus his job at the same time better than him and all of them pitching in together. And even if he could, he didn't acknowledge the impact on morale and uh, how they'd all feel uh, if this guy is micromanaging them, not allowing the latitude uh, and in many cases doing their job for them. So it's really crucial 
again, that you have this climate, this culture uh, where people feel free to speak up, recognizing that at a certain point in time, strategic leaders do have to make decisions. And then everybody does generally have to, you know, march to the beat of the same drum, uh, at least until proven otherwise. Yeah. So General, I have, a, I have a few more questions. How, how are you looking on time? I don't want to press you for too much time. You've already given a lot. I got another 10 minutes. Perfect. Right, okay, you, perfect. Sir. So we're going to move through these pretty fast. And I, because you said it, I have to ask House of Cards. I, I really love the series. Uh, one to 10, 10 being awesome, very accurate. One being ridiculous, terrible. What do you think? Um, awesome in the first season or two. Yeah. And there's a certain point at which it started getting just so sort of it's it's a little bit like Homeland. I was actually yeah. watching the first I season of Homeland until then. Yeah. As the CIA director and Homeland is so intense. And then it had all these things. I've experienced some of this. You know, you, 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 you know, you come home from war, you're changed, you're different. I mean, the, the, you have different There's it, all this stuff was conveyed brilliantly i mean a lot of it again was complete fantasy i mean you don't have um cia officers bugging the houses of domestic yeah. folks domestically you don't i don't think you've ever pulled the trigger in the homeland uh if, if it did it would be a huge issue because of course number one the fbi has primacy for anything in the united states it's well known that there are cia folks that are in uh, helping out in various municipalities and doing a variety of tasks and these joint counterterrorism task forces and so forth. But they're not running around the streets having shoot 'em ups uh, every week uh, the way you did with Homeland. But it was so intense that nonetheless, I thought it was really, really good. The problem was that, again, you sort of run out of that after a year or two. And again, it just kept getting more and more fanciful uh, to the point that it, you know, it was so so bizarre, so beyond the pale uh, that you just no longer can can watch it. So I, again, that's the challenge, I think, for it. You know, it, this is not unlike, I mean, a, a phenomenal sports team that figures out how to be number one. Um, and then how do you do it again? Um, you can't just keep calling the same plays. You've got to have new varieties. And obviously, you have ch personnel changes. There are injuries, all the rest of this stuff. That's a challenge in the entertainment business as well. Yeah, I, I mean, I, no, obviously, <laughs> uh, to say that I don't have the same experience would be a, a tremendous understatement as you. But I, I feel that as a as a fan and as a, a voracious reader of books in general, that the, that a lot of these series like Homeland, which we're seeing now, it's like they're based on some really awesome stuff, and then and then when it gets too successful, they go, oh, you know, like, well, we don't have a whole lot left, so we'll make some stuff up now, right? Yeah. Well, there is that. Uh, again, um, there's a great Israeli series, uh, the name of which escapes me right now, but it's built on, again, a combination of special ops and intelligence. Um, and it's extraordinary. Uh, really, really, really good. But again, this one individual has sort of every possible experience that anybody could have Right. in the course of the first season alone. So, you know, what do you do for an encore? They actually strung it out really at a really, really high level for two seasons. Uh, it it's, gets more challenging uh, after that, needless to say. Yeah, of course, of course. So, um, I, let's, you, should we go? I got right for oh, go ahead. Go ahead. So, you know, being the former head of the CIA, I know you can't really tell us, but tell us about Roswell. 
<laughs> are you aliens? Are aliens out there? Well, you, you may have seen it. I, I assume you covered it as a newsflash uh, that the Pentagon reportedly has an office exploring uh, this particular phenomenon. So I obviously can't talk about what goes on at Roswell and how, how what, what, what good care and feeding we provide to the aliens who are out there. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so, uh, so, you know, one thing that, before we get to the, 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 the actual questions from the listeners, and we'll go as fast as we can, the one thing that I'm curious about is a lot of people that we've talked to, you know, mostly in the special operations community, especially naval special warfare, say that they know that they wanted to do what they're doing from a very young age. Did you know, General, that this is something that you were passionate about, that you wanted to do from a very, very young age? or is this Not really. Um, I think the reason I went to West Point was, I mean, first of all, I grew up in the next town north of West Point on the Hudson River, so seven miles from the U.S. Military Academy, right around Storm King Mountain. And over time in high school, um, I just started to admire people who were products of West Point. We had a lot of retired uh, senior officers. I mean, over half of my newspaper route customers were either retired West Pointers or actually still serving uh, and so forth. I saw there's a prep school there for students that were trying to go to West Point. And I was just very impressed by all of them. And the more that I did have contact with them. Then our, our ski team used their ski slopes. So we got to know their ski racers. I was a soccer team. We won our championship in high school. We played uh, down there. The more contact I had, the more I admired them. And so, you know, it's sort of counter because this was the, the some of the most intense years of the Vietnam War. I started at West Point in the summer of 1970. But I think that's really why we do a lot in life. We want to be like Mike. And for me, Mike was the West Point and West Pointers, and I admired them and thought, you know, I'd sort of like to be like them. Uh, and then, you know, I still wasn't completely certain, uh, even as a young officer, because a number of very impressive young officers, I was very fortunate to, to finish well up in my class, quite high in the class, the top 5% and so forth. And I was the number two person in the class who chose the infantry branch. And so I got to go to this single airborne battalion combat team in Vicenza, Italy. It was an extraordinary assignment, really awesome. And the year before, uh, the two guys that went were the, the brigade commander of West Point, the top ranking cadet and his deputy. And both of them decided to get out actually uh, after their first assignment. And there were times when, you know, you have to ask, gosh, if those two guys are getting it, and they were just extraordinary. They were both top 5%. They were the top leadership position, and they were lettermen uh, as well, athletic lettermen, all of which I had done. I've been a cadet captain, not the top, top guy. And so you do wonder. Um, but the more I did it, the more I enjoyed a combination of really physically demanding stuff, but a lot of very cerebral stuff. And then you start to go back and forth between, you know, when you're eventually you do get tired of carrying a rucksack and, you know, sort of living in the rain and all this kind of stuff, the walk to daylight operations that we would do. And so, you know, I went to grad school uh, at Princeton and had two great years there. Um, and, you know, then you'll be back in an infantry unit and then you're the executive officer for the chairman of the Joint Chiefs or the aide of the chief of staff of the Army or 
the speechwriter for the NATO commander um, between these different. And so I've loved the mix of, again, really demanding physical stuff. Again, 101st Airborne Division Battalion Command, 82nd Airborne Division Brigade Command, 82nd Airborne and Assistant Division Command, 101st Division Command. So you're in these great units, having started in the spectacular airborne unit as a young lieutenant, where we'd go jump with the French and the Brits and the Germans and uh, and all that stuff, and they'd all lead us astray, of course. And then, and then you'd do these other very demanding intellectual uh, endeavors, and that's really, I think, the essence of what makes that special. Um, so I was, again, extraordinarily fortunate. And, you know, you, you end up being, I mean, there are a lot of folks that will say, and rightly, you know, Petraeus was lucky to be commander of the surge when he was. And there is a lot to that, but there's also something to that adage that luck is what happens when preparation meets opportunity. And I tried to prepare my entire life for what ultimately were these four-star commands in Iraq and Afghanistan, Central Command, and the two- and three-star ones that preceded them. And, you know, a lifetime of study, of, you know, assignments elsewhere in Haiti and Bosnia and Central America and, and all over the place. Uh, and, of course, all the formal military schooling that you go through as well, plus this added uh, very out-of-my-intellectual-comfort-zone experience in graduate school and teaching international relations and economics as well at West Point. So it was really a, a wonderful and a, and a true privilege uh, to be able to do what I did uh, for ultimately 38 and a half years uh, in government overall. Yeah, that's, I mean, you, you I mean, the, the things you've done and the place you've been have been unbelievable. And uh, one of our very close friends, uh, my very close friend, Tyler Merritt, who is a West Point graduate, who's also the top of his class, who uh, became a night stalker and then became a professor at, at uh, West Point, you know, says so many good things about West Point. And, and it's like, I think it's one of his defining, one of the reasons why he's been such a great entrepreneur and such a great, I mean, honestly, such a good friend and such a good person in general. He uh, attributes a lot of that into West Point. He also talks a lot about, you know, because he had, fortunately for him, he had a path out, right? So he had created a company Maybe he shouldn't have created it, but what he was why he was in, he created this company, uh, Nine Line, which is Nine Line Apparel. It's very popular. Oh, you, you can do that on your, you know, on your own time. You have to be very careful to, you know, not be doing that during the workday. And I'm right. sure he was. And he, but was. And I'm he sure he also careful. got all the approval. Right, he was very careful uh, and as when well. He left, everything was okay. He's in great yep. standing. Uh, but transitioning out from from that to where he's at now, you know, even for him, it was it was a little bit. Oh, it's very very tough. Difficult. You know, when you because there's there's a lot of guys that we we know very well who was extremely difficult. Where it's like it is know, very very challenging. You know, yeah. when you take off the uniform for the last time and you actually showed at one point the retirement review, and that was literally the last time I wore the uniform uh, while on active duty. Uh, went home and hung it up, and you have just you've lost a, a mission that's larger than self. That's it. That's my final speech in uniform. Um, you have sort of lost a degree of identity. I mean, if you look at that uniform and you can read the career, my entire career is on those ribbons, those badges, those unit insignias. I mean, it tells you who you are, where you come from, 
what you did, how long, I mean, even on the right sleeve, every one of those bars is for six months in combat. Wow. And I think I had, um, I don't know, 11 or so of them. I mean, it almost goes up around the edge of my arm, as you can see. And, you know, these are big deals and you take that off and now you're just wearing a suit um, and you lose the community. So, you know, you've, everybody in the post 9-11 force in particular raised his or her right hand and took an oath at a time of war, knowing that he or she could end up, would end up deploying to combat. And many of them in the very intense periods, that's our son, by the way, right there, I think, in the most intense periods, um, we're going a year in combat, a year back, a year in combat, and on and on. So uh, again, it was really an extraordinary group of people. Um, there's another moment, one of the most memorable moments of all was on the 4th of July, 2008, when I was the commander in Baghdad, we're way into the second year of the surge. And we had the largest reenlistment ceremony we believe in history. And it was in a combat zone, 1,250 soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines in a big, huge dome. There was a picture on the front page of the New York Times, above the fold, actually. And I was the reenlistment officer, and I recited the oath, and then they would repeat it after me. And I was looking out at them and asking, I mean, what is this all about? I mean, we're in combat. And they are re-enlisting. And by the way, the, the Army forces during that period served 15 months straight in Iraq. We had to extend their tours because we needed the additional combat power. And, and they're re-enlisting for another tour, knowing that they're very likely going to be asked to come back and do another tour, either in Iraq, even though we were starting to draw down, uh, or in Afghanistan, which was beginning to build up. And you wonder, I mean, and the only explanation is that, again, they feel privileged to be performing a mission that's larger than self and is really important to our country. Uh, whether people believed in the policy or not, again, they, they actually love the soldiers that are doing what, what they volunteered to do. Uh, they feel privileged to do it with others who feel the same way. Um, and they do appreciate the fact that Americans at home, again, regardless of their views on the policy, um, really feel grateful to those who have served at a time of war and to their families as well. Uh, so it, it's quite a special experience. And again, you take it off for that final time and it's not a surprise that folks struggle. And I had, you know, you all go through issues. Um, and, you know, when people ask me, so what can we do for our veterans? Um, my answer is always don't just provide them a job provide them a career at least an opportunity for a career and there's a big difference between a job and a career job is you're just doing this you're guarding that parking lot for the rest of your life a career is what we were talking about earlier you're going to start here but now we're going to invest in you we're going to educate and train we're going to mentor you we're gonna have affinity groups with other veterans. We're gonna provide a path uh, for progression for you, opportunities for promotion and advancement, uh, encouragement, uh, rewards, et cetera, et cetera. And that's what we should do for our veterans if we really do care about them. By the way, businesses have long since learned the wisdom of hiring veterans. KKR, where I'm privileged to be a partner, 
which owns about 100 companies around the world, um, we've hired, I think it's over 80,000 veterans and spouses because we believe they're, they all bring these unique experiences, uh, unique skills, knowledge, uh, and attributes. And businesses have long since, and it's why uh, the veterans, former active duty members, uh, have done such extraordinarily well. Yeah, General, uh, that's... We probably have to get just a one last question, I'm afraid, Aaron. Then okay, I'm one last question. Let's go. Let's rejoin go. The, the family let's, dog. Uh, let's do it. I, I and, and, and thank you for all the time you've given us, General. I really appreciate it. And uh, let's go to one question from the listeners, and we'll, we'll call it a day. And we truly appreciate it. What does General Patricia think of Edward Snowden in the Chinese surveillance state? So, uh, General, so you, you mentioned in the beginning, uh, you know, obviously loyalty to state and uh, secrecy. Je Edward Snowden, obviously somebody who did not respect that. Uh, your opinion on on him and, and the whole thing? Well, the, the question really is, you know, how significant were the losses as a result of what he um, exposed? And the, the crown jewels are what are called sources and methods. Sources are individuals, uh, ways of gathering information, techniques, and so forth. The methods, again, the, the real technical aspects. And of course, he was a contractor at the National Security Agency uh, at NSA. And he exposed extraordinary, incredibly sensitive um, sources and methods and did enormous damage uh, as a result of that. You know, these these techniques, the technical capabilities. Uh, he alerted uh, enemies of our country that we had certain capabilities uh, that caused them to change their means of communication, their means of command and control. I mean, again, I, you can list on and on and on uh, the exposure of truly extraordinary capabilities many of which uh, were rendered useless as a result of this uh, and set us back very, very significantly in the fight against Islamist extremists, uh, in efforts to collect intelligence in denied countries and hostile locations and all the rest of that. So it was really a catastrophic loss uh, that was the result of what it was that he uh, stole from the NSA and, and then exposed. Um, so again, a really tragic event uh, for NSA in particular, but for the intelligence effort writ large. And that's what, of course, a number of people have have observed in uh, recent weeks uh, when it has come to discussions about his future. Yeah. But but Aaron, let me tell you again, we went way farther than. Candidly, I had intended to go. Um, yeah, I, know. I know, I know. And I know. it's been a pleasure you. to Thank do it, though. You it's, yeah, it's always, always, your time is valuable. No, it's always wonderful to talk to fellow competitive human beings. And um, again, I'd spend a little more time on the on the bar before I think you want to challenge me. But uh, when you you know get a really we'll really good night's sleep that. sometime and. <laughs> 
give yourself a rest day and try to catch me on all day. Go on to Boca. We'll see how it goes. Okay, for you, general. I'll give you a shot at the title. But, um, you know, let me actually end with something that might be relevant really to the folks you were talking about earlier. Uh, and those are the folks that are sort of in the trenches, as we say. You know, the folks are doing really important tasks, but they can be, they're, they're physically demanding. They can be repetitive. They're, again, it's just constant mountains of stuff that they're dealing with. And, you know, what you've got to do is understand that they, all of us actually, even you all, do experience what's termed ground the Groundhog Day Syndrome. Even the commander of the surge at a certain point in time, I'd get up in the morning and i say, oh man, you know, you look at the calendar, I get more congressional visitors that are going to, you know, be all over me. I've got to call the Pentagon. I have to deal with the host nation leadership. We're going to take tough casualties. There's going to be explosions, uh, hopefully not civilian losses. But again, it just every day was very, very similar. And it was Groundhog Day. It was the same as the day we had, and the same as the one after that. And when that happens, and it does to all of us, and I'm sure it has happened to you, even in your exalted position as the founders of a firm uh, and the strategic leaders of it, what you have to do is pull yourself up to 30,000 feet and say, hey, you look down at yourself and you say, how extraordinarily fortunate uh, am I? Um, you know, in your case, I am leading, a, I've been, I read your bio, by the way. I mean, I read what you've been through and the adversity you dealt with early on. And I've dealt with all that and we got all that in the rear view mirror. I've built a company, I got a great partner, a great workforce. We have a mission, we think it's important. Uh, we think it really serves those who are part of it, we're giving them you know, energy, enthusiasm, all these. Um, and we're doing it in the United States of America, which for all of our shortcomings that we've always had and always will, is still the place that I would want to be uh, and always want to be. And so how fortunate, how incredibly lucky uh, are we to be where we are to in our, each of our individual circumstances. And that goes for the folks uh, out on the stock floor as well. Uh, and again, especially if you can provide them that path and that opportunity for advancement and invest in them and make them realize how much you care about their future uh, and providing them opportunities uh, that will allow them to, to grow and to develop uh, and to increase what it is that they're able to do. So I, I think it's hugely important to understand this Groundhog Day Syndrome and after you've done that up at 30,000 feet, you're supposed to get back down to terra firma uh, and pick up the rucksack again and pick up the pace and move out smartly. Thank you so much. With that, I, I better let you go. I appreciate you so much. Thank you so much for being on the show. We really, really appreciate you. I'd love to have you back on in the future at some point. And thank you for giving us so much time. My, I, my pleasure. Great know. to be with you guys. Thank, thank you so you. much. One more than you, big guy. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good it's competitive. You listen, love it. listen, he comes here and we'll see what happens. I'm not so sure, you know. He's, you know, he's an advanced in age, and, and I'll lose weight just for that. And I, you know, I don't you know, get I don't know. No, I'll just, I'll just I, I do a carb cycle or or uh, keto, whatever I got to do. I'm not losing to him. No way. No drop a hundred pounds. <laughs> I feel like he. I feel like he. He would also feel the same way. He's gonna diet and like train for that. If he were to come here, 
with all that. And I'll definitely talk some shit and see what happens uh, when he comes. I have a feeling he would die trying to beat you. (laughs) He may. He may. He he may. may. I I don't see him backing down. So, no, I don't either. You know what? That was awesome. He was fantastic. I'm just mad he wouldn't tell me about Roswell. But he was kind of like, yeah, he didn't say no. He didn't say no, no. He was like, yeah, I mean, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, Ryan. Don't tell me they're from you. Okay. Come on, go, Ryan. Go. Uh, You should read it out loud, Ryan. Read it. So talking about the stacks for the readiness trials, basically asking when will MRE RTD slated to be here? What are we talking about? Sometime in September. So it's a weird thing. And we've been, we've been, we've been, I mean, We've been talking about this and thinking about this for you know, a year plus. So what's going on with the RTD, the MRE RTD, is that it's happening in September. Now, Eric would be able to tell you much more than me. And it's like this thing is committed, 100% committed for September. Right, 100%? Should get the date tomorrow. Okay, 100% in September. But because of the, how it works with these type of things, you can't. they can't say this day yet, right? Next well, month? Probably so. This month, they're like, hey, it's going to be this month, and they're going to figure it out. They're going to push it in. Oh, look, there's this is what we're at. There's, the, cool, there's the cooling Good tunnels. Job, Good job, Johnny. Look at him. Yeah, and the thing is, too, is, you know. Shut the rest of Johnny when he talks. Nobody wants to see him. Yeah, no, oh, nobody does. God. Seriously. Like, <laughs> not even my own mother. Me um, and him. Are, this is more interesting. But so the thing is, you know, when you get into this world of these 500 ml Tetra Packs, Think of like all the different products in the grocery store that are in these. There's People don't realize that there's so many. Broth, soup, kids' milk, you name it. Like juice, you, juice. Yeah, so if you really walk down the aisles in a store, there is so much that are in these Tetra Packs. So, you know, Redcon's no longer competing with the Glamby, the Optimums of the world, or Dimatize. We're now competing against Kellogg, Nestle, you know, when I say competing for line time. So... You know, what we had to do essentially was we ran one pilot run in Denton, Texas, that cost us a good chunk of money. Which I see right now. Yep, this, a, is, yeah, this is the very first one. And then when we found a co-packer who said, okay, yeah, we're willing to at least entertain this idea. Yeah, bet on us, literally. So, so we had to run, pay to run another pilot run. And it wasn't until they physically tried the final product and said, holy shit, this is completely different. We feel that you guys are going to do really well. Then they said, okay, we'll work with you. So... It's much, much different. It's like, you know, we want to come out with a new pre-workout. We knock out a formula on paper. We give how it to our... Look how look. fat I was. You look way different. Here. Yeah, Holy Jesus. Shit. I look like I could be playing Santa Claus. Was that recently, though? Uh, that was December. Holy shit. Yeah, look how fat I was. I was a fat fuck. I was pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> Holy shit. That's super crazy. 60 pounds heavier, for yeah, God's that's sake. Your, that's your brother. Your, your big brother. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of embarrassing, especially like our uh, our corporate video is the one that pissed me off that got me to lose weight. But um, we have to do it again. We have all we still have all the words. We can do it again. Well, shit, sixty pounds lighter. <laughs> but so, anyways, with the RTD, it's you know it's one of those things where now Morgan Foods is actually betting on us as a company, and well, they're like, "Holy shit, dude, you guys are good, and and the drinks are great, right?" So. Those, those guys tried the first run. Those guys tried. You're adjusting my shirt a lot. Those guys tried the actual Emory RGD, and they're like, "What the fuck? Like this is going to be a big deal. Yep. We need to like focus on this stuff and say like, whoa, this is the next thing for this category. We may, we, I don't know, if we'll beat Sunny Delight or whatever, but we're, we're going to be right there. I mean, we're going to be with those type of big companies now, and uh, people out there haven't tried it yet, so they don't know. 
but you've seen the design, you've seen more about, seen the differentiating factor in the fact that it's not way, but you haven't got the taste of it yet. Once people do, it's off to the races. Oh, thanks, Johnny. That's them, sort of. Kind of. Sort of. There's a little, it's not it's exactly. Uh, it's an old video. But, fat, fat videos. They're going to walk down memory lane. <laughs> Any videos yeah, I mean, there's got to be, man. There's got to be one where my gut's hanging out the side or, like, my oh, left hand over no, big no, enough no. to grab. Um, no. But, like, you know, that's the thing is, you know, the, the co-packer had to more or less say, hey, I'm willing to give up a sure bet on line time with yeah. a, a Nestle a to give it to these guys. So. Yeah, it's a big deal. And so now that they've tried it, they're excited. That gives you an idea of, like, where we're at with this thing. So for people that are going, like, well, I don't know if it's going to be good. How is it going to be? What's going to happen, right? We're trying it here. That's the Denton, Texas uh, trial. That's the first We're one. trying it. Um, so for 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 those guys, who are not those guys, the Denton, Texas, that's the Tetra Pak facility. But the guys we were actually running with, they had to know that it's going to be a, a surefire bet. They have to try it. They have to say, wow. So this thing is going to be a success. Otherwise, they would give the line time to somebody else, which I don't blame them. Because they have finite line time, and they have to give it to who's yep. ever the best. Because that way they won't be a, you know, they won't have a loser on their hands that won't make line time again, that won't be interested again. So for us, not only do we have line time this month right now, we also have line time next month for exact same amount of time. Doesn't matter. They're like, oh, shit, they believe. I mean, that's got to be a big thing where they go, oh, shit, we're not only going to give you line time for this month, we're going to do the same thing next month, which just means that they're going to sell out of 24,000, 28,000. Uh, cases plus, which I think will sell out way think? earlier. Oh, no, I know, I know, I know. I'm not trying to be cocky here. No, but I'm just we're saying, gonna like, fucking smash this. There we we're go. gonna take all the money from all these fuckers. <laughs> buy Premier Protein, buy LeBron, buy them all. They're all gonna be like, well, may as well cash out your chips now and leave because it ain't gonna be there in a year, and the year is all gonna be gone. So, bye bye, side of sport, kiss, kiss it all, goodbye. <laughs> Sorry, Mike. <laughs> yeah, no, well, he's gone. He's, he's gone. gone anyways, yeah. I'm just saying. I'm trying to be the cocky guy who says no. those things, but yeah, it's the truth. So, um, but okay. Last one. War games are going to be released this weekend. No, not this weekend. You want to explain or? So I mean, it's a it's a long process. Yeah. It's not like I would love it for me this weekend, but what's going on right now is we're manufacturing the product now, and the product will be ready in a few weeks or so. And so we're debating, and that was the post I made today. Uh, there, oh, look at Johnny. Johnny, you ready? Kai, there's yeah, Kai. Kai this is so there. cool. Kai was super excited. Texted me, emailed me, you know, DM'd me, everything else. He wants to try it. I didn't even know Kai plays video games at all. Apparently he does, and he's very excited. So there's three flavors of war games, which are pre-gaming formula, our enhanced gaming formula. It's way better than anything else on the market. No question. It has a much better formula, thanks to uh, Silky Tube Eric Hart. Uh, people are not literally everybody who mentioned the formula is that, well, that's way better than every other formula out there, which is uh, a no question thing. We could come out with a formula that isn't better than G fuel or any of the other gaming formulas out there. And, and we certainly did. And people are very excited. And uh, Ryan said, show Ryan, show Ryan, show Ryan, quick, quickly. None of this. He said, but he was way, sure was. way wrong based on based on the, the the group we have now. My 
Instagram who basically consistently, if you have that still, Johnny, all day long says 10 out of 10, we want it. We want it now. Including Kai Green, everybody else, they say they we want it. 1,233 people, but about how many comments are on this thing saying 10 out of 10, Johnny? Can you show how many comments are? Can you go back and like see? You know, go press Aaron Singerman, press my name. Or no, and then press the picture again. Let's see how many comments are. Oh, 227 comments. 200 of them are saying, look at these guys. They're all saying unbelievable, badass, 10 out of 10, time to return to the war zone. They're all saying. So I would say it's pretty reasonable to think that this product will be out this month. I think so. This month. But and, yeah. I guarantee you it will sell extremely fast. Yeah. Well, people, so when we did our, we did, um, we've done it twice because we've been planning this product for a little while and people got excited like three or four months ago. And then we, we obviously had COVID and all this other nonsense, right? Well, this bullshit we're dealing with, but we, we've talked about it in the, uh, in the, in our meeting, which is called the town hall, which all the employees were at. So make sure that they know that they're part of the, the bigger picture for us. And whenever we say the word war games, they go, ah, people go crazy. People Everybody goes crazy. And, and so for me, I've never played video games since I was like a teenager until recently. Yeah, so now, it's like you and I will go play right now, probably. Yeah, maybe <laughs> once we're done. My wife's probably asleep. You're going to sleep. Probably going to beat you at some games. I've got, I got, not only do we have one in the Earth Theater room upstairs, we're right on the third floor, but we also have one in my office. So I can actually beat you. I probably, honestly, I probably lose. Uh, probably. Because I've been lose. drinking. Uh, yeah, but probably lose anyway. <laughs> honestly, you play way more than me. Um, I'm, I've just learned, uh, I never played a video game for like 10 plus years, honestly, maybe more than that. I, I played with the years. kids mainly. And so, you play, yeah. you play a little more than me. So my hand to eye coordination is not so good, but when I take war games and you don't, I beat you every fucking time. I embarrass you. So <laughs> war games for me, it's like, I'm like, oh, what, what's that button? And then all of a sudden war games and like, the hand and hand I just kill everyone. Honestly, that's not true, but if it was true, it'd be awesome. So, <laughs> <laughs> so Johnny's showing us the Emory Light RGD. They're that's so the right cool. one. They're so fucking cool, man. JP, Nicole. Now the, thing, the thing, yeah, JP, Nicole, they knocked it Ivan, out. Enrique. These guys are, are so good at what they do. We have a great team here, man. That that would not be possible if it wasn't for those. Well, guys. even like the uh, war games, that's all holographic. It's you know, it's, it's, it's all these different substrates. Yeah, the even the neckband on it's a holographic. So, yeah, you got people who are just creative, great with design. So you get the. We have a whole team of people. Like in my past, I had like one guy I worked with that was this interesting combination of being really creative but really surgical. But our whole team is like that. I mean, we have yeah. such a great team. Yeah. So we have a very a very. I mean, not just an amazing team, but it, but it, uh, so General Petraeus said you want people who are, are bought in, right? That believe in the mission. And so in life, uh, it's very difficult to get people to believe in the mission because the mission is, is, is obtuse. It's not something that people can understand. In the military, it's more, it's more uh, succinct where you know, like, hey, missions kill the terrorists, missions to kill these bad guys, missions to save America, whatever the fuck, whatever it is, right? It's very clear. What the mission is when you're in Iraq, you're, the mission is to free the country, to uh, liberate the people. You're in Saddam Hussein, etc. Right? That's what he was working on. He he obviously did a better explanation than me, but that's what his mission was to some degree or another. Right? Uh, smaller or larger. <laughs> Kai has his own mission, which is uh, indistinguishable from life in general. But he's wearing he's wearing the right kind of shirt, and I love that. Uh, and I love Kai also. Kai and Adam are the best. But 
you know, so for, for General Petraeus, he had a very dis distinguished mission. For most businesses, nobody knows what it is. No. Nobody knows. They have no, they have no conception of what we're trying to do. Uh, whereas for us uh, at Redcon, people do know and they understand and they push for that. And they'll stay late at work and come in early and do what they have to do at home. And that's a very unique and distinct thing that doesn't exist in the world in general, uh, with, with the exception of some of the military units, right? Uh, mostly companies, people go, oh, oh, it's five, see ya. And they leave and they go, oh, the, somebody's calling me at seven. I'm not answering. I'm, I'm at home. I'm relaxed now. And, uh, and that's okay too, but that's not the kind of, you know, culture we foster here. And if somebody doesn't answer my call at seven on a, on a Saturday over and over again, I'm probably, probably not going to be here long, you know, because that's not the kind of company culture we want. And I won't, I won't accept that. Neither would you. No. And the thing is, is like he said it earlier, there's the difference between a job and a career. Yes. There are people that this is a job and that's the way it's going to be. But I would say if I were to bet the majority of the people here really view it as a career. Yeah. Um, you know, like, look at take Zach, who was going to go back into the military and was like, no, okay, I have a career chance now. Yeah. So, you know, that's the thing. I really feel like the majority of the staff really view it as a career. And happy birthday and congratulations. Got to married Zach today. Leeds, got married and had his birthday today on the same day. And uh, and Eric brings up, we'll, we'll, we'll end it on this story, which I've told many, many, many times. I love the story of, of Taylor Schnarz, who's uh, Taylor was packing boxes when we started. Basically, there you go. Happy birthday. You keep running spelled happy his birthday. Name, right? Happy birthday. How about happy birthday and congratulations to getting married. So not only did he get, have his birthday, but he got married and uh, there's a little girl right there. That's the two rings on each finger. So um, there you go. That's that great. kid doesn't look like him. <laughs> <laughs> you know, hopefully it'll be more as he goes, but yes, she's she's a pretty, very pretty girl. I got, to, I got to hold her the other day, which is oh, yeah. awesome. She's adorable. She's yeah. adorable, and she's she's tiny, which I haven't had a tiny, tiny one in a while. So don't be getting any ideas. I do have a lot of ideas, Eric. So I'm going to call Darielle right now for you. So um, so anyway, um, you know, so with Taylor, Taylor was uh, a packer. He packed boxes. He came in the very, very beginning. I don't think it was one of the very first. No, he was ways. like the second wave of warehouse second staff. Wave of warehouse staff. And Taylor did a good job. And then Taylor did a great job. And then Taylor impressed people. And then Taylor moved up and moved up and moved up and moved up. And he moved from $12 an hour to where is that now, which is uh, great. Like an unbelievable amount of money for a 25-year-old. He's probably in the one one-tenth of 1% one for 25-year-olds. Imaginary is his Corvette, his dream car, me and Eric, and his dream car, and Eric and Taylor. And so I always tell people when they come in, and so um, and then the reason I really bring this up right now is because uh, General Petraeus mentioned where you have to show somebody where's their path, right? So Taylor's the path of a lot of people that work for us. Maybe not in the packing, you know, warehouse position, but in general. So the, the, the in life, right? You have to push. You have to be better than other people that are around you. You have to go further than you would want to do or they would want to do, especially they would want to do, other people around you, to achieve. And so for me, growing up, I did the littlest possible thing. I did the least so I don't want to get fired, although I did many, many, many times. I've been fired more times than most people had jobs in their life. Because I did the least. I tried to do the least possible thing I could do. And then the flip side happened, and I did the most that I could possibly do. And man, was it rewarding. And so for Taylor, doing the most, he doesn't do he didn't do the most like for somebody making 100 grand a year. He did the most for somebody making 100 grand a year, making $12 a year. $12 on, I'm, I'm sorry, a year. $12, $12 an hour. $12, $12 a year. <laughs> yeah. He was slave labor. But he did. He would have anyway, honestly. He would have anyway. And that's really what separated him because he didn't just do his job. He did much more than his job. 
over and over and over. He'd literally be promoted. He'd do more. He'd be promoted. He'd do more. And that is the reason why Taylor's in his position. He run, He is the, I don't know how many people, 65, 70 people uh, underneath him He's now. got the most people underneath him. And he's he a very important my job. Very, yeah, he has a very important position. He does very important stuff for the business. And one day Taylor will be making, you know, I honestly believe Taylor will be making seven figures one day. I don't know where, when that day will be, whether it'll be uh, five years, two years, three years, or a, d- a decade. But Taylor at 30 something years old, we'll be making a million dollars a year. Guaranteed. And that's because Taylor works his ass off. At 25, he's going to be somewhere very different at 35 or 45. And I truly believe that. It's because not because he's super smart, although he is super smart. And not because he's, no, oh, he is, he is. <laughs> like, I'm being insulting. He is smart, very, very smart. But it's not because of that. It's because wherever he is, satisfied with or most people be satisfied with he's pushing further and going harder than other people would and that is truly what it comes down to because i'm not so i'm not way smarter than you know i'm not 99.99 percent smarter maybe smarter than a lot of people but i'm not smarter than everybody there's plenty of people i know i personally know quite a few people way smarter than me and uh, and i've exceeded them in terms of success because i've worked harder and that's really truly what it's really about you can't be a, a, a moron and, uh, and and be, you know, where Taylor is going to get. But you can be somebody who's reasonably smart or has the ability to be reasonably smart and outwork people. And that's what General Petraeus was saying, is saying that, look, if you value the team over yourself and you push extremely hard, you will be rewarded. And it, it worked for uh, the men that work for General Petraeus, and it's also working for the people that are good. Yeah. I think Snoop Dogg said it best. If it's hamburgers that you're flipping, be the best damn hamburger flipper Hell there yeah. is. And that, I mean, that's the attitude I always had in life. If I had a shitty job, I wanted to out-hustle everyone because if I was bad at a shitty job, I'm just bad in life. So, and again, I agree. Like, there's a lot of, there's a lot of tailors in the world, and I think it's just giving them an opportunity to foster that. 100%. I agree with that totally. And also, on the flip side of that, I'd worked a hamburger job, and I'd be like the worst that didn't get fired. But, (laughs) But the most important thing of that is that, the potential was always there, right? And you may not realize it, or maybe people around you realize it, but they say you're an underachiever. And for me, everybody said I was an underachiever. You know, and I look back at my, my high school grade, like recently look back at my grade card, and I was a B average. But everybody, everybody that I knew, whether it's kids or teachers or the principal, uh, when I went back there, the principal remembered everything, and they get to take a great picture with uh, General Montgomery, uh, was the principal of my school. And, um, Man, everybody said you're an underachiever. And at the time, I was like, that's a compliment, right? Because I, I realized that means they all think I could do better. You just had a lot of runway. Well, I had still. a lot of runway, right? But for me personally, I didn't ever, I just was like, well, I'm, you know, I'm doing all right, being an underachiever or whatever. But ultimately, when I flipped the switch and became an actual achiever or even overachiever, that's when life changed. But ultimately, from the moment that I was considered underachiever from the very beginning when I went to school, I always had that same ability. I just couldn't flip the, I couldn't do that. I couldn't flip the switch. But people out there, lots and lots of people have that same ability right now. And that's when people, when I love, I love uh, when I get messages from people that say, you told your story of, of drug addiction. And I think General Petraeus obviously read it. Yeah, uh, I was addicted to heroin, intravenous heroin and, and cocaine and, and all the other stuff. And, and I was able to overcome it. And that's not because I'm something super special. It's because I made that truly real decision to do that. And all these people out there that right now, probably more than ever, were dealing with drug addiction and uh, and feeling depressed and, and problems in their life and 
no money and bills and everything else, they think that the life is over and they have no potential. When in reality, this is only probably the beginning of your very minimal uh, pushing towards your potential. And so for me. No, it's a, yeah. I remember you saying that you would yeah. never get a six-pack ass, and you did. Yes. A lot of people said when, when I worked with Johnny back in the day, indeed, Plumbo, a lot of people thought, you know, that I had no muscles and was not like, you know, not really into fitness. And, and yeah, I was uh, 225 pounds, pretty damn lean. I met the uh, the girl of uh, the girl of my dreams right there, Daryl Daryl Gaines slash Singerman, right around here. Yeah, I met her earlier, earlier than here, and the rest is history, man. And so when when I took that picture, I would never, never have thought, you know, we'd be running a, you know, hundred some million dollar billion dollar company one day i would never have thought i'd have money or any i never thought any of that stuff i never thought and i didn't even want it honestly i wasn't thinking about when i'm gonna when i'm gonna make a hundred million dollars things like that didn't even matter i didn't know what i was gonna accomplish but i knew that i could try hard and at that point i met dave plumbo and i started working with rx muscle and i realized that there was other potential in me i wasn't just called a a uh, underachiever actually was that I could, I did have the horsepower to kick ass and take names. I just never pushed it. Look at me, Johnny, Johnny, come on, man. You're, You're embarrassing me now. I'm, I'm, it's my, the beginning of my fatigue. Yeah, I was way too big, they said. Yeah, now they're going to get back. Yeah, not, I don't know. Maybe now we do that, maybe not. I don't, I mean, I don't have the hair and the, the, the face for it, but otherwise, <laughs> otherwise, otherwise, I did, I did all right. I would have done all right now, but. Yeah, I mean, look, ultimately, I never had a problem pushing hard and working hard if I had reason to. And I think that's where people, you know, lose their focus, Eric, where they don't know what the why reason I, is. Yeah, why, why am I doing, doing this? Yeah. Why, am I, why am I pushing so hard? And, and really, that's uh, that's life, man. It's it's There's always a reason, whether you see it or not, whether you're sweeping up at McDonald's or flipping burgers or whatever, or you're working at, you know, General Petraeus. Uh, Petraeus worked at, uh, initially was, at West Point and graduated and started Ranger School. So like, if you get going, you don't know why you're doing it. It doesn't matter, do your best because it's leading you down a path where it could be something fantastic. And if you don't work, the one thing you can always guarantee is if you don't try, you won't you won't succeed. Yep. And Patricia said something about luck and you know, I hate that word. I fucking hate the word luck. Um, there's just opportunities in life and then it's whether you, recognize it and act on it, or you choose, you recognize and choose not to act on it. And that's really what it comes down to. Um, like I always say, even playing the lotto is not luck. The numbers are random, but you consciously said, I'm giving you this $2 to buy this ticket. I got myself in the game. Right. So that's really what life is about is you just, you have to be in the game every day. Every and day. you have to make a choice to do something or not do something, but it's ultimately still your choice. And if you want to be successful, you have to choose to do. So you have to be in the game. Eric said it. So, guys, thank you so much for tuning into episode 14. Very, very honored and grateful to have General David Petraeus on the show. Thank you, Johnny and Ryan in the background. And uh, hell yeah, tune into the next episode. I believe we're going to have Medal of Honor winner Dakota Meyer, who's one hell of an interesting guy and is uncensored as you get. But I haven't guaranteed that yet. Darielle Singerman in the background. Thank you. <laughs> and we'll be back next week. Good night. Hey guys, what's up? So the Redcon One deal is here. When you spend $50, you get the Vice City hoodie. When you spend $80, you're gonna get a free tub of Big Noise. That's a strawberry kiwi flavor. That's a pump formula. When you spend $95, you 
you get a choice of flavors in the MRE light protein, blueberry cobbler, or the oatmeal chocolate chip. Also, 35% off the entire store. Just use the code VICE35. Go to redcom1.com. Check it out now all weekend. The following announcement has been paid for by Redcon1. When's the show coming back? When's it coming? Ask the missus. She always tells me. Wait. Am I allowed to say that? Is this PG? For TV14. That's the plot. Monday. Coming Monday. Monday. We're taking over. Say, say the line. Money. 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 Monday. Chico. Yeah.